lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas, and I'm joined in the right corner with Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to the fault lines on Radio Sputnik. How you doing, Malik? It is Wednesday, and we talked about it yesterday, and those Democrats... I was about to bring it up. I was about to bring it up. Right here. Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair's statement on Ukraine letter. And right here. Detracted. They withdrawn their letter asking for... Not even for him to end the war. Their thing was negotiate basically something. Negotiate, negotiate something. something. It's like, dude, so 100,000 people have peace. died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our inflation is going through the roof. Our economy is in tatters. Europe's economy is in tatters. A reasonable position. Very reasonable, yeah. considering everything that's going on. They're going into the midterms. I know they have to have pressure from yes. under them saying, cut this out. How are you taking this right. war position as an anti-war left? Mm-hmm. They come out, they said... The proximity of these statements created unfortunate appearance that Democrats, who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of military, strategic, and economic assistance to Ukraine people, are somehow aligned with Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for Zelensky. Yeah. We don't like it because Republicans are for it, so we, we're going to back out of it. We don't want to create an appearance of of um, similarity between the Republican Party, so we got to pull back. And before I go to headlines, I'll just say this is something that it is, this reminds me of the comments that Mitch McConnell made about mm-hmm. the about Republican senators running for office and how we made it may cause us to lose to Senate because we're essentially running bad candidates. Right. And the right, everybody just like, oh no, how could you say that? He was saying that something that was true. Right. But it was during the midterm election cycle. Which they they're saying deal with. something true. Right. But it's the midterm election cycle, and so it may hurt their electoral chances. But see, that's, is it, that, that's it's it's so hypocritical. Yeah. In that sense, but I think it's a similar thing where this is actually this could hurt them in the midterms, and that's what they were hearing in their ear. In their pull ear, it yeah. back, pull, pull it, back. it back, and I would imagine somebody um, showed up at their office, Nancy Pelosi, or or not Nancy Pelosi. They might even get a phone call, chief of staff. Yeah, it's like, hey, look, this looks bad, and Democrats aren't approving this well. I mean, do you think it's a situation where they came up with this statement because they thought, okay, maybe McCarthy didn't have a point? Maybe the American public is going to wed what's happening in Ukraine to the economics, to economics, and that is the thing that the American public cares about most? Or do you think it was the other way around? I think it, yeah, I think it's possibly a little of both, but mm-hmm. they're recognizing that the caucus, so progressives, Democrats, and I won't just say it's just progressives, but Democrats overall, they're looking at this saying, hey, WTF, you know, what's going on here? And so yeah. remember, they were pushing, even criticizing AOC right. for supporting. Exactly. So I think it's part of that. They're hearing from a lot of people that, hey, you guys are the Progressive Caucus. What are you How doing? Is, what is it that you're doing? And then they're hearing from their own party. The political side. Cut say, this out. You're making the president look bad. Right. Oh, man. Tell me about it. Wow. And in domestic wow. news, the Biden administration's optimism has dwindled <laughs> given that research, research organizations, including 538 Project, uh, likely are projecting a likely Republican majority in the House of Representatives, the report said on Tuesday. The White House now puts Democrats' chances of keeping control of the Senate at 50-50. However, President Joe Biden still believes Democrats have a strong shot at retaining control of Congress, and the administration is publicly sticking to an optimistic message. Yes, absolutely, it makes sense to stick to an optimistic message, 
no party, no president is going to say we're going to lose. But more than likely, that's exactly what's going to happen. Still iffy on the Senate. Billionaire industrialist Elon Musk might actually seal the deal on his purchase of social media giant Twitter later this week. He told a group of financiers working with him on the purchase that it would be completed by October 28th. The deadline set by a judge. Musk made the pledge during a Monday conference call with a group of seven Wall Street lenders led by Morgan Stanley, who are providing $13 billion worth of debt financing to grease the wheels of the deal, according to Bloomberg. An undisclosed source told Bloomberg that the banks expected to receive a borrowing notice on Thursday and the cash would be held in escrow. U.S. President Joe Biden's approval ratings has dipped even more in the last few weeks, according to a, real, a new Reuters poll. According to the two-day national poll, a dismal, a dismal 39% of Americans approved of Biden's job performance, a percentage point lower than just a week ago. Biden's unpopularity is helping drive the view that Republicans will rent, win control of the U.S. House of Representatives and possibly the Senate on November 8th. Control of even one chamber of Congress would give Republicans the power to bring Biden's legislative agenda to a screeching halt. U.S.-based Raytheon Technologies, one of the largest aerospace and defense manufacturers, manufacturers in the world by revenue and market capitalization, posted a near 5% year-on-year surge in the third quarter, revenue on Tuesday. Company sales grew to $16.95 billion during that period, based largely on... <laughs> based largely on its missile and defense contracts, in part to the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, as well as rising air travel demand, which buoyed, buoyed parts and services sales. The Raytheon Missile and Defense Unit reported third quarter adjusted sales of $3.678 billion. They were down 6% versus the prior year due to, to the supply chain constraints and declines on some military programs. But the decrease was partially offset by higher volume of those strategic missile defense orders that were sending to Ukraine. In international news, Western countries should not isolate Russia. On the contrary, they should establish direct communication with Moscow to resolve the exceptionally difficult current political situation. Norwegian Prime Minister Jonas Gar Storr said on Tuesday, Jonas Gar Storr, what a name. There is nothing good in isolating Russia. It is alarming that today we have so few contacts and direct communication with Russia, Storr told the Norwegian parliament as quoted by the NRK broadcaster. The lack of dialogue undermines the possibility of reaching a peaceful settlement in Ukraine, the Norwegian Prime Minister said, adding that the current political situation was the most difficult since World War II. China is taking strides towards completing reunification of the motherland. A spokesman for Beijing, Beijing's Taiwan Affairs stated on, to, on Wednesday, we're closer, quoting, we're closer than ever in history and we're more confident 
and capable than ever to realize national rejuvenation. Ma Chao Guang. Gonna say that one again. Ma Chao Guang stated on a at a regular news briefing in Beijing without directly referencing Taiwan, regarded by China as an inalienable part of its territory. Similarly, we're also close closer than ever in history, as well as more confident and capable to realizing complete reuni reunification of the motherland. They want me to say it again. Ma Chao Guang. Got it again. Joe Biden has welcomed the UK's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, but that's not the name the 46th president used in his address. During the White House Diwali event on Tuesday, Biden referred to the new UK leader as Rashi Sanuk. Can I say it again? Rashi Sanuk the 46th president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, referred to the new PM as Rashi Sanuk. Just as incoming, the incoming PM was meeting with King Charles III and being tasked with forming a new government. Biden said, we've got news that Rashi Sanuk is now the prime minister. As my brother would say, go figure. Wow. Finland's draft legislation on the country's accession to NATO, which is almost prepared, does not contain any restrictions on establishment of military bases and deployment of nuclear weapons on its territory, local newspaper reported on Wednesday. The legislation will allow for the deployment of nuclear weapons in NATO countries and establishment of the alliance's military bases on the territory of Finland, putting no limits on NATO's military presence in the country, according to the newspaper. The draft legislation is expected to be considered by the Finnish parliament in two weeks. The I, the International Atomic Ener Energy Agency's IAEA Ministerial Conference on Nuclear Power in the 21st Century is kicking off in Washington, D.C. October 26th through the 28th. However, Russia's representative will not participate as a result of the U.S. government not providing them the necessary visas. Quoting, the conference will provide a forum for ministers, policymakers, senior officials, and experts to engage in high-level dialogue on the role of nuclear energy in the transition to clean energy sources and its contribution to sustainable development and climate change mitigation, IAEA said in a description on the website. The Russian delegation, composed of representatives from the state corporation Rosatom and the technical watchdog, Rostechnadzor, Rostechnadzor, planned to take part in the ministerial meeting, but was not provided the necessary visas by the U.S. government. In Earth and Science News, a UFO study by a team of NASA, NASA scientists began on Monday with researchers from various disciplines poring over unclassified data to better understand the aerial phenomena. After decades of secrecy, multiple government departments are now turning their attention to the skies including the Pentagon. The space agency study brings together 16 researchers, including data scientists, oceanographers, physicists, and astrobiologists, as well as former fighter pilot and astronaut Scott Kelly. The study will use only unclassified data from civilian and commercial sources and does not aim to explain what UFOs, referred to by NASA as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAPs, actually are. 
Rather, its findings will inform NASA on how best to study future sightings. So the study doesn't aim to explain what UFOs are. The study will inform NASA on how best to study future sightings. <laughs> Makes sense, huh? How does that work? I, I don't know. <laughs> they just don't want to say it. They just don't want to say it. That's okay. That's okay. I'll accept Jeez. it. I'll accept it. This is not going to tell us what these are. No. But they're going to help us with future investigations about what these things We're are. We'll figure it out in the future. Okay, yeah. 50 okay. years later. Okay, yeah. okay. Whatever. okay. whatever. This day in history. Whatever. 1863, International Conference begins in Geneva aimed at improving medical conditions on battlefields. This is the beginning of the Red Cross. In 1977, last natural case of smallpox discovered in, Mer in the Merka district, Somalia. Considered the anniversary of the eradication of smallpox, the most spectacular success of vaccination. In 2019, a raid by U.S. Special Forces kills ISIS founder Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in Syria. These are your headlines for Wednesday, Hump Day, October 16th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. So before we go into the monologue, did you see the debate with Fetterman and Oz? Yeah. No wonder Fetterman didn't want to have that debate. Yep. No wonder Fetterman didn't want to mm -hmm. have that debate. Um, look, I there are certain recaps online if you guys want to go see it. I also go check it out. There is one particular question that they asked him on fracking. Fetterman comes out and says, I'm for fracking. I've always been for fracking. I need we, we need to have our individual thing. The reporter asked him very straightforward, like in a very straightforward question, right? Well, wait a minute. You weren't always for fracking. Right. I mean, so, so what has happened? Why did your position change? I'm, I'm for fracking. I'm for fracking. And I, I just leave it at that. I'm for fracking. And it was, and you, it was like, oh, this it is a guy who had a stroke. Yeah. It, it was, was like a lot of that debate was uncomfortable. Yeah. He had a difficult time saying his words. He had a difficult time putting thoughts together. Mm -hmm. um, and on that particular question, it's like, ugh. And, and, and in all fairness, it was a stroke. Yeah. I mean, strokes are serious. Stroke. Yeah. There are, stroke. there are many people who don't fully recover, Correct. never fully recover from strokes. And I think that the the challenge that the Democrats have, at least, you know, at, at the end of the day, Fetterman is still winning in the polls. But for the if time he being, I don't know after that debate. Yeah, but even if, imagine if he does get in, though, mm -hmm. he still has those same limitations. As a senator, now obviously you have a whole office right. that can kind of run the office for you, but those limitations still exist. Yes. Do you really want that? That's the question. How much do you hate Oz? I yeah. guess that's the question, right? I mean, you see that and you think to yourself, oh, we already have one Democrat president who's in. This guy's going into the Senate. Can this guy do the job? And unfortunately for Fetterman, this happened almost immediately after you know, during the race. So he hasn't yes. had like a year or two yeah. to recover and get, that's not it. This is a guy who just had a stroke, mm -hmm. who didn't want to have this particular debate. Because during the all primary. Of, yeah. All of those weaknesses of that particular thing was going to come to light. Yeah. And I'm sorry. It was such an, it was such an uncomfortable de debate to watch. I've never watched a debate that was so. Yeah. Where I, even though I'm like, yeah, get him, Oz, you know, and I still so cringe. But I've never watched a debate because you realize you're watching someone with a medical condition. Yes. And so you feel like, ooh. Yeah, you feel bad for the guy. Yeah. And it's like, but I'm, it's like if I would I hire a blind guy to drive a truck. And I know it's a little bit different. Run, um, no. But. It's a good parallel. 
I mean, maybe the blind thing is a little bit more um, brutal. But no, it's a, it's a, it's a valid point. Yeah, though. this person had a medical issue. I feel bad for the person's medical issue. This person wants to do a job that the medical issue may adversely affect. Mm-hmm. Do you put him in for the job with the belief that okay, he's going to get better, or this is not affecting his mental capability in regards to logic and thinking and everything else? Is only in his ability to communicate. Right. I don't know that. Right. And so it's like if you're in Pennsylvania, or you're voting. I guess I'm saying. I can see either argument, right? I can see it says, look, he had a stroke, but he can still do the job. Or mm-hmm. I can see them saying, he just had a stroke. Can he do that job? Does right. this affect anything? Man, that was a rough debate to watch. And, and, and it was serious. And I think that for um, it, it, Oz is not, you know, Oz is not a, a, a Carrie Lake or, you know, he's okay. But I think people should realize that in Pennsylvania, and I understand why Democrats are really pushing for the seat, yeah. because the seat is actually Pat Toomey's seat. Pat Toomey is a Republican. Right. So they wanted to flip. They, they're trying to flip the seat, but it's not as if the seat is already a Democrat seat. So I understand why Democrats are definitely pushing to flip it because it would somewhat change um, the makeup of the Senate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was cringe. Yeah, that was a rough one to watch. Um, and we'll talk about it later. I'm going to pull up clips from that, especially... The mm-hmm. one with the um, fracking thing. The fracking. Because that was weird. Yeah. It's like, but you have this he statement. He couldn't even process. He yeah. couldn't process what, what they were saying. Which yeah. He, and they even had, I guess, what the closed cap, whatever on his end, the closed captions, because that was part of the debate because they had to um, wait for him to be able to. Oh, process understand. what was being said. Yeah, right. even that's rough, right? I mean, one guy is going after it. I mean, it's not even like Oz is only much liked. Like no. Republicans hated the guy. No. Yes. And so they wanted Kathy Barnett. And yes. I was like, that is a terrible decision. Yeah. They should have gotten the guy, um, the one who came within a couple of points of Oz. I can't remember his name. Yeah, but he, he might have been a much better or something. He was yeah. better positioned to win. And I don't think it would have been an easy, uh, uh, like a hard fought race between Oz and, I mean, this guy and Fetterman, but they chose Oz. Why? Because that's who Donald Trump liked. Imagine for the moment if Oz loses this. It's like you lost a guy who just had a stroke. Thanks, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to have a conversation about the lefties that came out with a letter. First, the letter came out saying, hey, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, we need to seek a, quote, rapid end to the conflict, unquote. And then after being criticized, I suspect, by members of their own party or people who were basically backing Joe Biden, they basically came back to clarify their statements, responding to criticisms. Here's the thing. Back during, I'm sick of weakness. I mean, there's a level where this is criminally remorseless weakness on the part of the lefties. And I got to be honest, this is why you get such criticism in regards to you and your, let's say, faction of the Democratic Party that in many respects, it's supposed to just so your political framing, supposed to on some level be antagonistic to that party that you are in. Look, when Democrats 
when Joe Biden was running for office and Joe Biden said $15 an hour is a starvation wage. Joe Biden said this several times on the campaign trail. Even after he got elected, he said $15 is a starvation wage. This is not something that these people, our heroes, went through in regards to the um, COVID pandemic. And made the point of saying the idea that these people put their lives on the line in order for the rest of the public, in order to propagate as they propagate it, was a crime. And so he said, I'm going to push $15 an hour and I'm going to do it through budget reconciliation. Now, Joe Biden could have pushed this through. He could have put his foot in it where he said, well, we're going to fire the um, I can't think of her name right now. Um, oh, I can't think of her name. It'll come to me in a moment. But he he could have did this. Instead, what happened among a small amount of pushback with Joe Manchin coming out, basically saying, I'm not for this. Joe Biden folded almost immediately. You got lefties who in the House of Representatives who had enough power to push back and prevent that bill from going through. What did they do? They initially pushed back and then they immediately folded. And so in a situation where supposedly the president, speaker of the House, leader um, in the Senate, all of these people were supposedly for the $15 an hour minimum wage. The moment that Joe Manchin was against it, all of a sudden, everybody basically collapsed and folded. So the situation where you had the president, you had the speaker um, of the House, and you had the Chuck Schumer majority leader, you still couldn't bring yourself with the courage to kill the bill in the way that Joe Manchin killed the bill. You should have came out screaming, oh my God, Joe Manchin is taking the food out of babies' mouths. You should have said whatever you needed to say in order to put the onus on the president to make a choice one way or the other where he was going to back Manchin or back you. And it's not just backing Manchin and you. It was backing his own campaign pledge. Instead, on something as significant and as serious as $15 an hour, you fold it. I'm making the point that this is not a singleton or a thing that happens once. This is something that happens over and over again. In a conflict where 100,000 people have lost their lives and when it became very clear that the economic devastation that your country is taking and your allies in Europe are taking and the American public's main focal point, economics and inflation, and the moment that you can make this connection between the actions of the U.S. in a geopolitical sense and getting its European idiots on the same page in regards to this nonsensical economic war stuff, when it becomes very clear that that policy is adversely affecting your local populations and you are supposed to be the left, the anti-war left at that, this position, this letter that you sent to him was politically correct from the standpoint of what the public cares about, but it was also ideologically correct. If you're supposed to indeed be the anti-war left, why are you okay with the president waging a geopolitical war? It's a proxy war. The president is screaming about Armageddon. Why doesn't this concern you as an anti-war left? And is it, I don't know, what's the word for it? Is it more patriotic to take a position that doesn't drag your country closer to war, that tries to extricate your country from this war, especially when it's hurting your constituent populations. Is that indeed an accurate position to take? Well, yeah, I shouldn't have to say it. It should be very self-evident at that point. Meaning you send a letter telling the president, we need to bring this to a close. We need to have some level of resolution to this. It is hurting our populations. When you get into the issue of wealth for a moment, you have the situation where whites, on average, 100, I think this is 50 or $60,000 from the standpoint of net worth. African-Americans, that number goes all the way down. I don't even know if this is $10,000. And so when you're getting hit with inflation, 
when you're getting hit with rising costs. They're talking about 2.8 million jobs being lost next year. Who do you think that is going to hurt the most? Do you think that's going to hurt people of color, your primary constituents? And I mean, for the entirety of the Democratic Party, blacks vote, what, 90 percent Democrat? And many of these lefties, these are the constituents that many of these lefties are representing. If indeed you're backing a policy that is causing millions of job losses, that is causing millions of people to get hit with excessive bills from the standpoint of gas, heating, or for that matter, food, then how is it wrong for you to take this particular position? And is it wrong for you to take a position where you are basically egging this stuff on and making this stuff worse? The point I'm making here is it makes all the sense in the world for you to take that political tack where you tell the president you need to bring this to a close. You shouldn't have even waited for the eight months. Instead. They fold. Within a day, they fold. Right here, Jayapal. Representative Premier Jayapal, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, issued the following statement on a letter regarding Ukraine. Quote, the Congressional Progressive Caucus hereby withdraws its recent letter to the White House regarding Ukraine. The letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by staff without vetting. A chair of the caucus, I accept responsibility. Because of the timing, our message is being conflated by some as being equivalent to the statements by Republican leader McCarthy threatening to end aid to Ukraine if Republicans take over. That's not exactly what he said, but okay. The proximity of these statements created the unfortunate appearance that Democrats who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of military, strategic, and economic assistance to the Ukrainian people are somehow aligned with the Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian forces. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every war ends with diplomacy, and this one will too after Ukrainian victory. Are you on drugs? Are you on drugs? I mean, for God's sake, if you are even looking at this partially, you would come to the conclusion that that's not going to happen. Russia, working with an expeditionary force and dumbass militias, was able to take 20% of the territory. Now Russia has claimed all of that territory as their own after a vote where those people decided to throw themselves to Russia because they were sick of being shelled by the Ukrainian military working with the U.S. as they were being shelled. I'm making a point here that you are already off the reservation in regards to your framing of this for one point, but you weren't wrong in your pushback on the fact that this administration was basically waging this particular war at the expense of your own constituents. How weak, how weak, how criminally, remorselessly weak. I mean, talking about flaccid is an understatement. You come out with a correct position and then because you get a bit of pressure from probably other Democrats and then you come out with this argument. Well, we don't want to look like Republicans, despite the fact that Republicans are about to take the House and the Senate, which should give you a heads up that maybe on this issue they're right. When you get the American public whose main issues are economics and inflation and immigration, let's take out the immigration, the first two, economics and inflation, and your president is doing something that is making that worse, and that the American public recognizes making that worse, and your response is, we're going to stand in lockstep with this president, despite the fact that the American public are skeptical of this war, especially if the American public itself has to take a hit, and you put out a letter wedding yourself further and closer to the thing that is causing them this economic pain. How ridiculous and stupid can you be? It's one thing to be weak. It's another thing to be idiotic, especially on this issue of ideology. When those, that guy went out there and read AOC, the riot act, 
Do you honestly believe that that is the only guy, the only lefty that has issues associated with this war and the idea that the United States is making this war worse and propagating this war? That war could not continue if it wasn't for the U.S. giving them billions of dollars, trying to get its European idiots to give them weapons and materials, even to the point where it's to the detriment of their own capability of defending themselves. Are you lefties or not? And when it comes to things that you're going to go against your party on, do you have the courage to push in areas where you should be pushing, especially when it's ideologically consistent? It seems that that answer is demonstratively no, you do not. Whether it was with this, whether it was with getting Biden passed on the uh, marijuana thing, whether it's being okay with the 10,000, yeah, you might have complained a little bit, but all things been equal, you were kept in line. Or whether it's something on the issue of war and peace. And again, on the issues of war and peace, this is not just the economics of things. This is people literally losing their lives as a direct result of the policies that you guys are taking. This issue with Ukraine is not about Ukraine. It's about geopolitical grandstanding. The catch is, do you know that? And whether you know it or not, you should at the very least recognize that it is adversely affecting your own constituents. And it seems that politics matters more than your own political leanings, your own supposed political ideologies, and for that matter, good damn sense, considering where the public is most likely going. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 945 or 845. But I want to bring in our guest, Robert English. Robert English is a journalist, writer, and political analyst who has lived in and reported from the occupied West Palestinian West Bank. He has also written for publications such as Mint Press, Mondo Weiss, Memo, and various other news outlets. He's a specialist in analysis of the Middle East, in particular, Palestine, Palestine, and Israel. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. No, thank you for joining us. So there, all hell has broken loose in areas of Palestine. And I'll just read the hell out on this. The pre-dawn raid targeted the Nebulus-based militia known as the Lion's Den, which emerged this year and does not answer to any of the established Palestinian factions. Many Palestinians have championed the group's fighters as popular heroes, in part because Israeli's occupation of the territory has dragged on for more than half a century and has become increasingly entrenched. Is that a fair assessment? That Lion's Den is somewhat of a new group that is, let's say, unsatisfied we're dissatisfied with the progress that has been made over the last 50 years or so. Um, and this group is now coming out to fruition, trying to, I guess, push back. Give me your take on this. Who is Lions Den or what is Lions Den? And how did this group develop and form? And what is going on currently in regards to the way the Israeli military is dealing with this particular group specifically and that bliss? Well, the Lions Den group or Arin al-Aswad, which doesn't actually directly translate um, to the Lions Den, but that's what it's known as uh, regardless. 
um, it was formed on the sec uh, the second of September. So it's a really new group. It's um, it's not been around for long at all, but it's carried out so far a deadly attack against an Israeli soldier in Nablus via a drive-by shooting, um, and has been involved in a lot of different um, uh, shooting attacks at Israeli forces raiding uh, Nablus. It's based in the old city of Nablus um, and is comprised of younger men between the ages of 18 to 25, um, like most of the other armed groups which have formed in the north of the West Bank in places like the Janine refugee camp and Tulukaram, um, and also different groups that have also formed in Nablus as well. Um, and the characterization of it as being supported by the Palestinian people is very much correct. Um, Palestinians throughout the occupied territories support um, overwhelmingly support the Lion's Den group because they are a, a group of young people who are opposing uh, the Israeli occupation. And interestingly enough, this group, um, because it does not have any political leanings, its members, you know, have been formerly members of uh, the unofficial Fatah uh, uh, armed wing, uh, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, and um, there's others from Islamic Jihad and from Hamas, um, but they have thrown aside their affiliations. And interestingly enough, this has influenced the groups in Gaza, where you now see the joint room of armed factions, which is comprised of all the armed groups in Gaza, um, coming together in a unified fashion. And, and in their last press conference, didn't even wear anything to distinguish each other from uh, one another. So you couldn't tell what who was in what faction. So this is obviously very popular in uh, sort of putting to the side factionalism. Israel is very much frightened of this and the trends in the West Bank of armed resistance. We see armed attacks every single day now in the West Bank, um, soldiers and settlers killed. Um, of course, the violence from the Israelis has been overwhelming this year. More Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank than Gaza this year. Um, and what just happened on Tuesday morning uh, was a major event in which uh, the Israelis for the first time used drone strikes inside of Nablus city uh, to kill Palestinians. And uh, anti-tank munitions brought in hundreds of soldiers, special forces units. Uh, they launched electronic warfare uh, at the old city, but luckily for the Palestinians, the operation they launched was foiled. Wait, you said luckily for the Palestinians. Oh, I see what you mean. <clears throat> the attack trying to go after them. Would you consider this? Th there's an article that you wrote. Would you consider this a third Palestinian intifada? I mean, all things being equal, you seem to have this kind of uprising among people who are in the population itself, who look to their credit, nothing has happened in regard on the domestic front from the standpoint of any kind of, um, let's say traditional things of compromise. So is that what's going on here? The group is sick and tired of basically being under um, an occupation. And this is their way, meaning the population itself has started to develop in ways that have eschewed some of the political organizations that have currently been there and are basically taking direct, and in some cases, many cases, violent action in order to try to overthrow this apartheid state. What's going on? Give me your take. This this is specifically the case in the West Bank, because the West Bank is de facto controlled by what's known as the Palestinian Authority, whereas in Gaza, uh, Hamas is in uh, control after it was democratically elected in the legislative elections in 2006. Um, and then there was a period where uh, the CIA and uh, the Israelis uh, 
collaborated with the Palestinian Authority to try and create a coup to kick them out. Um, in the West Bank, um, we have a situation where the Palestinian Authority has been re-engineered after what was known as the Second Intifada uh, to basically serve Israel's security interests. And we see that continuing right. today with the arrest of Palestinians, the torture uh, of Palestinians, and even the murder of Palestinians in the West Bank by the Palestinian Authority. Um, so people are not happy with the Palestinian Authority, which officially represents the Palestinian people, for instance, at the United Nations, um, and is the one that is in control of possible negotiations at this point. Um, Hamas is much more uh, popular amongst the Palestinian people just simply for the fact that it resists with armed force. Uh, the Palestinian Authority has not granted the Palestinian people a state, and so the younger generation are fed up and they're taking up arms. Uh, that's what we see at this moment. Um, but interestingly enough, what just happened in Nablus was that it was a Palestinian uh, authority security officer who had discovered an undercover Israeli unit attempting to penetrate the old city to go after the Lion's Den group um, who exposed the Israeli op uh, operation, which was approved from the highest levels of government and the military um, in coordination with the Shimbet, the domestic intelligence services. Um, and this is posing a major problem now because the Palestinian Authority has many elements within it, um, in its security services, which are not very happy as well with the uh, way that the political establishment is running the authority. So there is the fear that if the Palestinian Authority continues on its trajectory as, as it is currently going, uh, that elements within the Palestinian Authority itself will revolt and will side with the resistance in the West Bank. Oh, wow. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. Is there a larger strategic objective in some of these attacks? Meaning, is this just pushing back to push back with the idea that maybe some opportunity comes back later despite the response from Israel? Or is there a larger, let's say, plan or idea associated with what they're doing in regards to these regions? The idea from the young individuals is simply to resist. That, that if you speak to them, as I have, uh, for instance, with the Janine Brigades, um, you will hear that they just want to resist and they don't care about being martyred. Uh, being martyred, fighting the enemy is something, you know, of a prize almost. Um, it's better than living the life that they live. Um, you know, it's best to die on their feet, uh, to, you know, crawl and live. Um, so this is the stance they have. Uh, the wider picture, though, if you ask those who are more uh, politically savvy within these movements or people that support them would say that this would fit into the trend of uh, an intifada, like you just uh, mentioned uh, before, uh, which is a popular uprising. The only reason it's not declared an intifada at this point is because of the Palestinian authority. And that's just the reality which exists today in the West Bank. This would be deemed an intifada if the Palestinian Authority had endorsed it, but they haven't, and they continue uh, on with their security coordination with the Israelis, uh, which has essentially meant that the Palestinian Authority serves as a sort of uh, South Lebanon army, if you will, uh, against the Palestinian people at this point. Um, and it's a sad thing to see for Palestinians in the West Bank. They want a revolt. They want to uprise. They're fed up with the expansion of settlements. They're fed up with the settler violence. And they know that their life is not going to get any better for peace talks because the Israeli side is not, in, not even talking about entertaining the thought of peace talks anymore. Hey, Robert, thanks for joining us. It's Malik here. It, you, to actually piggyback off of what you just said about what the Palestinian people are supporting. In regards to the actual Israelis, 
Israeli raid itself, we know that there was lots and lots of heavy gunfighting. But <clears throat> it appears that the group has seemed to kind of resist it for some time. But do you think this is going to help them, like, gain support and grow after this, considering what, what they're going through now? This was definitely a difficult uh, operation for them to survive, but they did. One of the leaders was killed. Um, but when we talk about leaders, uh, you know, the command and control with these groups is not, you know, of traditional armed groups. Um, and you can't just destroy the group by killing one or two leaders. Um, they are being heavily persecuted at the moment. But what you said about their support growing is very much the case. Um, the leader who ended up uh, being killed uh, on Al Tuesday Kalini? morning. No, the, sorry? that was Sunday. Um, Al Kalini, the um, different person. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's another uh, leading right, right. member of the group. They assassinated him with a uh, an explosive, which was planted in a motorbike in the old city um, uh, as well, which shows how much the Israelis are, are you know, uh, going after this group at the moment. But everything like this only makes them more popular. This is uh, this is uh, something that needs to be understood earlier in the year. Um, in August, Ibrahim uh, Nablusi, uh, who was a leader of Kitab uh, Shuhad al-Aqsa, which is like the uh, Laksa Martyrs Brigades, um, was assassinated in the old city by Israeli special forces units. And he, especially because of the voice note that he released, uh, which was released from him um, at the very end, only inspired more Palestinians to take up arms. Um, and he is viewed, as are the leaders of the resistance who are killed, as national heroes and mourned as martyrs. Hundreds of thousands of people came to the streets to mourn the deaths of uh, these fighters in Jenin um, and the martyrs in Jenin in general, because even a Palestinian Authority security officer was killed uh, during this latest confrontation on Tuesday morning. So... Um, their support does grow uh, the more violence is uh, uh, brought against them. So th this is something that the Israelis are finding hard to deal with because they can't just kill them um, and expect that that's the end of it or kill a few leaders and expect that that's the end of it. Only more are going to uh, grow. You know, you can kill one and five others are going to come. Um, and this is something that has surprised the Israelis, despite their security coordination, which uh, doesn't seem to be working at the moment. I think the guy you were looking for is Wadi Alahu. Is that the person? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just to, as, as a follow-up to that, uh, particularly about Al Kalani, Kalani. Um, do you think that that there is going to be a concern now, um, considering his assassination? that Israel is moving towards a different policy, maybe focusing on targeted assassinations as opposed to the prospect of the larger raid? Like, is that a concern on the ground? I think both. Uh, the Israelis wanted to show a force with this operation that they failed dramatically, which if you look at the Associated Press or reporting in other uh, Western, uh, trusted Western outlets. Uh, it's a horrific uh, butchering of uh, the events that took place. It's not even close to what happened on the ground. Um, uh, you will see that they're, they're wanting this show of force, especially the Israeli elections are coming up. Um, so uh, Yair Lapid, the prime minister, wanted, uh, you know, a symbolic show of force to, you know, uh, defeat the Lion's Den group and impress the Israeli public going into the elections. 
Um, but in general, they've approved now airstrikes uh, on Palestinians and these sort of assassinations fear, uh, you know, these explosive devices uh, that they're planting around. Um, I, I can anticipate that a lot more of this is going to come. Assassinations of undercover units. For instance, earlier this year in February, they shot dead five Palestinians who were members of an armed group but were not actively involved in fighting in a car in Nablus. They just, you know, surrounded a car and opened fire on it and, and just shot everyone to death inside. So um, these sort of actions uh, will continue in the West Bank, um, but the resistance will not be defeated. Um, that's also one thing. They can kill a lot of people and they are continuing to do it. We're almost 200 people murdered in the West Bank. And by no means are these old resistance fighters that are being murdered. The Israelis are shooting at anything that moves because they're very nervous. Um, and there are a lot of armed attacks from Palestinians because, again, they're very angry about what's happening. Uh, the lockdowns of entire cities, they're, they besiege Nablus, they'll besiege Shuafat, um, refugee camp, uh, even in East Jerusalem, and not let the people exit. Um, and, you know, just strangle the people um, in these enclaves which exist in the West Bank, and people are fighting back against this. Yeah, the problem with this is the more that you kill people, especially if they consider it unjust, and they think their living conditions have gotten to the point where it is, how can I say it, it is more reasonable to resist than not mm -hmm. just because of the living situation that you find yourself in. And the more that they kill, I suspect the more people are going to end up on a list for them to take more action further, meaning this is only going to get escalate going forward. Abbas is an interesting character to me, um, Mahmoud Abbas. When is the last time there was an election in the West Bank? The last time this guy was elected is more than how many years? Like yeah, it's, 20 it's been years. a while. Yeah. And all things being equal, <laughs> this is Israel's guy. Like this is the guy that Israel goes to in order to keep the lid on the West Bank. And I suspect that the population who lives there, who looks at Hamas as being a resistance group, looks at him as being, you know, controlled opposition in some kind of weird way. And that's assuming that you want to add opposition to it at all. Um, if it an most certainly is. If an election was held in the West Bank, who would take it? Hamas. Just, 100%. hundred percent. And this is something that Israel dramatically does not want. They don't want an organization between the West Bank and, um, and, and Gaza. Yeah, and this is an interesting thing because last year, the Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority president, who, like you noted, is unelected. I think it's 15 or 16 years now since he's been elected. Um, he, he was going to hold elections last year and then canceled them at the last moment. He will use the excuse that Israel was blocking votes in Jerusalem, but they always do that and there's a way around it. So even though it's true, it, it's, it, it's still an excuse. Um, and what became apparent is not only that Hamas was going to win the legislative elections like they did in the past by a landslide because they're much more popular, but also that Fatih itself, the party, um, has been split up into so many different factions that on the lists that were being put forth for the legislative elections and then the talk of what was going to happen in the presidential elections, we could have had a situation where perhaps Marwan Berghouti, who is part of Fatih, uh, the party of Mahmoud Abbas, would have won the election whilst in prison. Um, so you would have had a Palestinian Authority president in prison and a Hamas legislative government. Wow. <laughs> wow. So that's why they canceled it, because it would have been a catastrophe for them. Get into the legislature for the moment, for the Knesset. 
where you have these Palestinian parties that for all intents and purposes, they're ostracized. They're not necessarily brought entirely into the political space until recently. I mean, where um, they wanted to keep Netanyahu out, in which case they were allowed to um, be brought into the political space. What is their effect on these events? Meaning, as you get the kind of um, attacks, the killings, the siege on the um, city for X amount of weeks, what are they doing? And do they have any influence in the political space at all in this situation? They have very minimal, to be honest with you, in terms of these Palestinian uh, p- citizen of Israel political parties. Um, the group that you mentioned, Ram, which is like uh, the one of the segments of the Islamic uh, party um, inside uh, what's known as Israel or 48 Palestine, um, that group is basically run by a guy called Mansour Abbas. And Mansour Abbas is um he he just wants power um his main voting uh constituency is in the Nakab or the Negev area uh with uh, Bedouin voters um and he doesn't really hold any he doesn't have any principles really to be honest when it comes to the Palestinian <laughs> okay. issue um but the other groups um they would never form uh, never be part of a government themselves let alone be allowed to be part of a government because they are a lot more radical um, and they they have a say politically. They they speak, but they they are not heard. Um, and the Palestinian citizens of Israel, if they want to be heard, they can do uh, a number of things, which would be civil disobedience or rioting. Um, these are the the ways which in which the, they are going to be heard inside uh, uh, the Israeli political establishment. They will listen to them if they do this. So uh, because they can freeze the economy there, you know, like uh, they control a lot of the labor jobs um, and, uh, you know, they're a big part of the economy. And, you know, this is 22 percent of the population inside Israel um, are Palestinian citizens, which are, you know, stripped of all their rights, essentially, Um, even with 68 or 67 different laws uh, which have been implemented against them, stripping them of their rights. So in terms of the political parties, Symbolically, maybe they have a say, but they can't really do a lot, unfortunately. Then real world terms, basically. Hey, Robert, I, just a, uh, another question for you. I was kind of fascinated by something yesterday. I was watching a, 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 a journalist ask the State Department spokesperson, I believe his name is, I think that's Ned Price. Um, he asked him a very pretty direct question, essentially whether Palestinians have the right to resist the illegal occupation of their land. And Price, not surprisingly, refused to answer, despite repeatedly saying that the U.S. will support Ukraine against Russia. Now, obviously, it looks like a double standard. Because it is. Looks like. (laughs) Because it is. But is this, do you think that this is possibly why we see a lot of resentment from Arabs regarding the U.S. position on Ukraine? I, I feel like this is one of the primary reasons. I think the Arab world uh, in of itself uh, is not trusting of anything that NATO or the United States backs. I think that's something uh, that exists throughout the region. Um, there, There is a segment of the Arab world that, that does back uh, Ukraine. I mean, for instance, if you watch Al Jazeera, uh, even Al Jazeera Arabi, um, they'll be speaking of Ukraine in a more favorable way. 
Um, and, and you have TV stations which are repre representing this point of view, and there are people that buy into the lines of the U.S. government. Um, but in general, people don't trust the U.S. government. And then when you see the double standards and you see the way that this is presented and you see the U.S. government talking about illegal occupation and annexation of territory um, and war crimes and killing women and children, um, and that's the reason why the U.S. must back uh, Ukraine, and those are the reasons being presented, it, it becomes somewhat laughable to Arabs. They don't buy it um, in general. Of course, I can't speak for the entirety of the Arab world here, but this is my sense. Uh, you know, uh, uh, My wife is Palestinian. I'm, I have a Palestinian family, and this is what I hear from them. Um, and this is what I hear from everyone that I speak to in the region. So um, yeah, it, it, the double standards are very striking, and that's coupled with, you know, uh, distrust of of the West, uh, Western governments, um, and specifically the U.S. government. You know, Jamal, that reminds me of what we were talking about with um, who um, Ukrainians, as far as who they allow, as far as the U.S. position allowing in the states, you know, they... Yes. Ukrainian okay. refugees in... Get a green light at Afghanis. Mm. Less so. Less <laughs> yeah. so. Cubans, Nicaraguans, <laughs> not at Asian. all. Yeah, Haitians. Um, let me ask you this. For those people who criticize... The position of these new groups who basically say, look, you guys are creating and escalating violence. You're creating a situation where Israel attacks Palestinians that much more. What is your response to those people? The, sorry, can you repeat that question? Sure. For people who criticize this position of the new groups, the new groups who are basically coming back and pushing back against this occupation or this um, apartheid state. And they say, well, basically, look, these groups may get, I guess they feel better in the sense of getting this kind of pushback and, like you said, attacking and, and showing some form of resistance. But all things been equal, what's happening is Palestinians themselves are being killed as a direct result of the actions the group are taking. What is your comment? What's your response to those people to explain why this level of resistance is something that is being, that's coming to fruition um, now? There's a few elements of this. Historically, the Palestinians have only ever been listened to or granted any concessions uh, because of armed struggle. That's just the truth. The truth is that the bargaining chips that the Palestinians have had historically have been the Arab world and its power and their own armed struggle. Um, these are the two biggest chips that they've had to play. Um, and in terms of getting a sympathy vote from anyone, this hasn't worked. I mean, just look at Gaza. Um, it, and it didn't take Hamas to come to power for Gaza uh, to be butchered. Uh, for the people to be killed. Whenever anything happens, they strike, they do anything, they walk down the road looking in a wrong, the wrong way for soldiers, they can get shot and killed. They're living under a brutal military occupation anyway. And it's, will you just accept it and die slowly? Or are you willing to pay a price in order to resist and restore your dignity as a human being? Um, and this is, you know, a concept that Palestinians have dealt with uh, for over 70 years now. Are you willing to just, you know, try and preserve your life for as long as possible, potentially, and live as a slave um, and live as unequal, live under a brutal military occupation and be killed probably anyway um, and have your land, you know, occupied and have more settlements expand? Or are you going to resist? And the people choose to resist. And you see that in the popular support for the resistance, because they know that the Palestinian resistance does not have the weapons of the uh, Israeli side. It, it does not have the training. It does not have the experience. And it cannot 
militarily overcome Israel in its entirety. But if they are going to get anywhere or they are going to stand up and at least preserve their dignity and fight for something correct, then this is the way they have to do it because they won't listen to you. If you go and nonviolently demonstrate like Gaza did in 2018, 300 of your people will get killed by sniper fire with no weapons, no guns, and they'll kill you anyway. So at the end of the day, you have no choice. Yeah, they were shooting people in the knees, in the head. I mean, that stuff was horrendous. And even during the situation where I think it was um, during Obama's period, what, you had 2,000 Palestinians being killed? And you had this kind of weird situation where the Obama administration continued to send weapons? I mean, it's a nuclear power state, for God's sake. Um, last thing before we go, we have about a minute and a half. On um, This was last week. Abbas, a, you know, favorite person apparently, <laughs> and I'm saying it facetiously, he says, quote, there's a, Russia has a clear position about the peace settlement between Palestine and Israel. He says, quote, we don't trust America and you know our position under no circumstances can we accept that America is a sole party um, in resolving the problem, unquote. He told Putin on the sidelines of the conference on the interaction and um, confidence building measures in Asia at Astana, Kazakhstan. He also commended, commended Russia for, quote, standing for justice and international law. Now, the Biden administration lost it and was furious over this. We have about 45 seconds. What's your take? What's your take on A about saying this and B by being upset with us, apoplectic over this? How dare they? I think uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority are owned by the European Union and the United States to a great extent in Israel. Um, and he may be trying to put pressure on them to, you know, speed up the process of trying to get peace talks on or uh, make himself appear like he's doing something yeah. um, by, you know, going to Russia and saying these things. That could be part of it. Or he could genuinely be asking for help. Uh, I, but hard to know. I doubt it. Yeah. Robert, thank you for this, man. Robert English, he's a journalist, writer, political analyst who has lived and reported on the occupied Palestinian West Bank. He has written for publications such as Mint Press, Mondo Weiss, Memo, and various other outlets. He specializes in analysis of Middle East, in particular, Palestine and Israel. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Oh, right. Yeah. Fascinating conversation. It's amazing how that stuff blows up. And it's been going on for like 70 years. Um, Can I mention something about your um, monologue? Yeah. 2007, the minimum wage was raised, George Bush, Uh raised from $5.15 an hour to $7.25 an hour. And it remains. Yes. The federal minimum wage remains seven dollars and 25 cents an hour i bring that up because i'm i live here in washington dc our minimum wage now i think is 15 dollars. Uh-huh. so i'm kind of removed from I, I was so far removed from the federal government the federal minimum wage being it's so low yeah seven dollars into i can't even fathom it is hard to figure out how to live off that in in any state this isn't just in these high price areas like yeah whether you're in Mississippi or Alabama, any of, how do you survive 
off of $7.25 in in a country with a $30 trillion debt. Think about that. And, you know, during that time period, they were, if I'm not mistaken, they were doing research to figure out where can you live off of the federal minimum wage. Pretty much nowhere. 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 I mean, do you remember? Um, you can live in your dorm room. <laughs> you can live with it. your parents. You can do that. Do you remember Ted Kennedy, when Ted Kennedy was trying to get the minimum wage raised by, I think it was two bucks. And they kept stalling him over and over again. He couldn't get it done. And he gave the speech where he started screaming, how much greed is enough? Like he was like yelling at the top of his lungs. And he was like, the pre-YouTube day. Yeah, that was before YouTube. It's on YouTube though. It's a great speech. He is losing it. He is like, Luke, he is so angry. And it comes, he is just unleashed. It's like oftentimes they said black people can't get angry like that because oh, they're angry black that. Ted Kennedy had no such qualms. Ted Kennedy he, unleashed. He was unleashed. He was like, how much greed is enough? We've been trying to get these American workers. Why do you hate Americans so much? It was such a good speech. $7.25. It was a speech that AOC and those lefties that were trying to get $15 an hour should have made. Hell, I would have been fine with them just playing it in the background to show Ted Kennedy making that speech, showing mm-hmm. back. Even back then, you had that fight going on. And today, like you said, $7. Who lives off that? I mean, think about here, even $15 an hour. How do you live in D.C. at $15 right. an hour? It's still hard. It's still hard. I mean, like, you can't live by yourself. Can't live by yourself. You can't afford the property here. I mean, hell, if you get a parking ticket for 50 bucks, that may be the end of your, you know, I mean, yeah, all of this. Yeah. Average price for a one bedroom apartment in D.C., I think, is around $1,600. Oh. You can't do that off of, even off serious? of $15 an hour. You can't. Do oh, that. that's painful, man. That's so painful. And so basically anybody who lives here, if they're working at the coffee shop, they got to live in probably Virginia or Maryland because they can't necessarily or afford it here. lots of other people. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I cut into your no, no, you didn't. headlines. No, dude. I Look, I am one of those people who are bad at um, getting immediately the headlines. But like, dude, this time frame is for headlines. Go into the headlines. So fair enough. No, that's, look, it's a good point, right? Um, so I appreciate it. And man, $7 an hour, painful, man. That's all I'm saying, painful. But let's get to headlines. In the news, the Biden administration optimism has dwindled given the research organization, including the 535 Project, um, and likely Republican majority in the House of Representatives report said on Tuesday. The White House now puts the Democrats' chances of keeping control of the Senate at 50-50, the report said. However, President Joe Biden still believes Democrats have a strong shot at retaining control of Congress, and the administration is publicly sticking to an optimistic message, the report said. I mean, what else is he going to say? I mean, what? The president is going to come up like, yeah, I don't like our chances. This doesn't look great. Who's going to have a president that come out and and does that. All things been equal. If you're a politician and you're pushing a particular agenda, you got to remain positive on the agenda. If you aren't, who is? Let's keep going. Billionaire industrialist Elon Musk might actually seal the deal on his purchase of the social media giant Twitter later this week. He told a group of financiers working with him on the purchase that it will be completed by October 28th deadline set by a judge. Musk made the pledge during a Monday conference call with a group of seven Wall Street lenders led by Morgan Stanley, who are providing $13 billion worth of debt financing to grease the wheels of the deal, according to Bloomberg. An undisclosed source told Bloomberg that the banks expected to receive a borrowing notice on Thursday, and the cash will be held in escrow. If I'm not mistaken, Musk also made this point about getting rid of 75% of the staff on Twitter, but I could be wrong on that. I don't have the article in front of me. Let's keep going. U.S. President Joe Biden's approval rating has dipped even more 
in the last few weeks, a new Reuters poll has revealed. According to the poll's two-day national poll, or according to the two-day national poll, a dismal 39% of Americans approved of Joe Biden's job performance, a percentage point lower than a week ago. Biden's unpopularity is helping drive the view that Republicans will win control of the House of Representatives and possibly also the Senate on November 8th. Control of even one chamber of Congress could give Republicans the power to bring Biden's legislative agenda to a halt. What legislative agenda? What legislative agenda? I mean, even the Inflation Reduction Act that Manchin apparently signed on to, um, is that really reducing inflation or is that just what they named it in order for Manchin to sign on to it and give this politics as if they're doing something about inflation? What legislative act? $15 an hour was crushed. The marijuana legalization was crushed. If you want to talk about um, even this idea that he was going to be doing something demonstratively, demonstratively different than Trump from the standpoint of the things that they said about foreign even that was trash. I mean, what legislative agenda? Joe Biden came in talking about passing all of this legislation, these high ideals and everything else. Well, all of that stuff hit his head on the shores of Ukraine. And all things being equal, Biden has made people's lives dramatically worse, which I suspect is why the approval rating is at 39% as Americans basically blame him for the fails or for the difficulties of the nation. Just makes it that much more ridiculous that those lefties will come out and wed themselves ever closer to Joe Biden's agenda, a man with a 39% approval rating. What do you expect is gonna take place the further and the closer you wed yourself with somebody who's under 40%? Let's keep going. Make Man, I'm angry about that. You have no idea. U.S.-based Raytheon Technologies, one of the largest aerospace and defense manufacturers in the world by revenue and market capitalization, posted near 5% year-on-year surge on the third quarter revenue on Tuesday. I wonder why. I wonder why. Company sales grew $16.95 billion during the period, based largely on its missiles and defense contracts, thanks in part to the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, as well as rising air travel demand, which buoyed parts of the service's sales. The Raytheon Missile and Defense Unit reported third quarter adjusted sales of $3.678 billion. They were down 6% versus the prior year due to supply chain constraints and declines on some military programs, but the decrease was partially offset by higher volume on strategic missile defense orders. I mean, keep in mind, some of the things that the United States has been supplying to Ukraine doesn't even exist yet. Some of the money that was supposedly going to Ukraine was basically going to restock our own missile supplies. This is money that has been given hand over fist to defense industries, and these guys are making um, gangbusters on basically geopolitical policy. $31 trillion in debt. $31 trillion in debt. And the only thing we can focus on right now are issues of war. Western countries should not isolate Russia. On the contrary, they should establish direct communication with Moscow to resolve exceptionally difficult current political situation. Norwegian Prime Minister Jonas Garstor said on Tuesday, quote, there is nothing good in isolating Russia. It is alarming that today we have so few contacts and direct communications with Russia, unquote. Store told the Norwegian parliament, as quoted by the NRK broadcaster, the lack of dialogue undermines the possibility of reaching a peaceful settlement in Ukraine, the Norwegian prime minister said, adding that the current political situation was most difficult since World War II. Hey, how about not expanding NATO to the borders of the country? How about not overthrowing the government of Ukraine? How about not putting NATO into the constitution of that country? How about getting Ukraine to fulfill the Minsk agreements? You had all of these opportunities. And now after a thousand or hundred thousand people have dropped dead and Ukraine has lost 20% of your territory. Now you've come to the sparkling idea of, hey, maybe we should have communication and dialogue. Look, communication and dialogue is perfectly okay if it's indeed communication and dialogue and not you basically grandstanding and try to dictate terms in a situation you don't have the power to actually dictate those terms. Yeah, 
Great idea, Prime Minister. Maybe that should have came all the way back in February before this started. Let's keep going. China's taking strides towards, quote, complete reunification of the motherland, unquote. A spokesperson for Beijing's Taiwan Affairs office stated on Wednesday, quote, we're closer than ever in history and we're more confident and capable than ever to realize the national rejuvenation, unquote. Mao Zigong stated. Xiao Guang. Xiao Guang, thank you. Xiao Guang, you know, I was happy to say it. Nailed it. Xiao Guang, thank you, thank you. Uh, my, my new Manila, my male Manila, I appreciate that. No, and I do appreciate that, by the way. I'm bad with, I'm horrible with names, so I appreciate the correction on it. Um, stated at a regular news briefing in Beijing without directly referencing Taiwan, regarded by, Ty, uh, by China as an inalienable part of its territory. Quote, similarly, we're also closer than ever in history as we are more confident and capable to realize the complete reunification of the motherland, unquote. You know what? What I don't know if the war planners or the people who are thinking about strategically in the United States realize this, and maybe the population of this country don't realize this, but if you would have left China to its own devices on the issue of Taiwan, none of this would be coming to pass. Meaning China's thing of, okay, we're going to bring these guys within the fold in 40, 50 years gets immediately sped up when the one-China policy gets ignored by the U.S., in which China believes needs to speed this process along. Meaning, you're creating your monsters. You're creating your monsters. And then decrying the fact that the monsters exist. Let's keep going. Joe Biden has welcomed the U.K.'s new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, but that's not the name the 46th president used in his address. Uh Uh-oh. During the White House Diwali event on Tuesday, Biden references the new U.K. leader as Rashi Sunuk, just as the incoming PM was meeting King Charles III and being tasked with forming a new UK government. Quote, we got news that Rashi Sanuk is now prime minister, unquote, Joe Biden said, as my brother would say, go figure. Rashi Sanuk, Sanuk, new prime minister of the UK, according to Joe Biden. Maybe this is a new guy that Biden um, was thinking about. He didn't necessarily know the person or the president was just monstrously getting the name wrong. Sunak is not a difficult name. It's not, what is it, Kwasi Goong or whatever that person is. Knock and nuke, knock and nuke. They're not the same. They're not the same. Recently, Sunak. (laughs) Get new handlers, man. Get new handlers. You got to get that right. You got to get that right. Um, Estetnan Berliner. And apparently they said it wrong. Let's keep going. Um, Finland's draft legislation on the country's accession to NATO which is almost prepared, does not contain any restrictions on establishment of military bases and deployment of nuclear weapons on its territory. Local newspapers reported on Wednesday, citing sources. The legislation would allow for deployment of nuclear weapons on NATO countries, establishment of the alliance's military bases on the territory of Finland, putting no limits on NATO military presence in the country, according to the newspaper. The draft legislation is expected to be considered by Finnish parliament in two weeks, the newspaper has said. The International Atomic Energy Agency's ministerial conference on nuclear power in the 21st century is kicking off in Washington, October 26th to 28th. However, Russia's representatives would not participate as a result of the U.S. government not providing them with necessary visas. Astonishing. Quote, the conference will provide a forum for ministers, policymakers, senior officials, and experts to engage in high-level dialogue on the role of nuclear energy in the transition to clean energy sources and its contribution to sustainable development and climate change mitigation. Unquote, the IAEA said in a description on the event's website. The Russian delegation composed of representatives from the state energy corporation Rostam and the technical watchdog, oh jeez. Rostiknazor. Rostiknazor. Nailed it. Thank you. Love it. Planned to take part in the minister meeting, but was not provided with the necessary visas by the U.S. government. And think about this. I mean, all things being equal, we're in the situation where Russia is saying that Ukraine is trying to create a dirty bomb. Mm. And... 
at the same time, they're like, yeah, you can't come into Don't the country come. to discuss nuclear stuff. I mean, and even the ridiculousness of them talking about, hey, we're going to um, join to talk about the transition to clean energy sources. They're talking about burning wood in Europe right now because they can't get the gas in order to keep themselves housed. They're talking about cutting back on the nuclear plants, coal plants. How the hell is any of this having to do with climate change objectives? Read the room, folks. Read the room, <laughs> indeed. A UF study by the team of NASA scientists began on Monday with researchers from various disciplines pouring over unclassified data to better understand the area of phenomena. After decades of secrecy, multiple government departments are now turning their attention to the skies, including Pentagon. The Space Agency study brings together 16 researchers, including data scientists, oceanographers, physicists, and astrobiologists, as well as former fighter pilots and astronaut Scott Kelly. The study will only will use only unclassified data from civilian and commercial sources and does not aim to explain what UFOs referred to by NASA's unidentified area of phenomena or UAPs, I prefer UFOs, actually are. Rather, its findings will inform NASA on how best to study the future sightings well. They're doing this because they don't want to deal with what's in the craft. This is something that Lou Elizondo said themselves. When they're encountering this technology, they thought it would freak people out to try to say, okay, what is it and what's in it? It was that part. And so their thing is, we're not going to touch that subject. We're just going to figure out how to study these later. Unclassified. Yes. Unclassified. And I'm fine with that. Well, because if they use classified stuff, they may not have access. And it's like procedures and methods. Okay, well, how did you track this plane? Mm -hmm. How did you get the video of that particular craft? How did you take... And they don't want to explain that. So from their standpoint, if we use unclassified sources, we can expose all information to the public as we're doing it. That's that's what they think about it. This day in history, in 1863, International Conference began in Geneva, aimed at improving medical conditions on battlefields, including or beginning of the Red Cross. In 1977, last natural case of smallpox discovered in America District, Somalia, considered the anniversary of the eradication eradication of smallpox, the most spectacular success of vaccination. Yeah, applause. I was born that year. In 2019, raid by U.S. Special Forces killed ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghari in, oh, al-Baghdadi, I'm sorry, in Syria. Those are your headlines. You're listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. All right, let's go to the voice of wisdom and truth. We're going to go to Mark Svoboda. I always enjoy talking to this guy. I've said it before. I could sit and talk to Mark for hours. Um, I don't think he would allow me to do that, but I could do it. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. We'll be Malik Abdul back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202 221-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. So I want to bring in our guest. We're joined with Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. Mark, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? Jamaro, Malik, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure. Morning, morning. Be on fault lines. And I would be glad to talk to you for hours, Jamaro, particularly (laughs) if that comes accompanied with a body of tennis bottle of Tennessee honey whiskey or a series of old fashioned. There we go. It, it will be. I would bring it with me and 
if you could bring me a um, liquor bottle of Zelensky Tears, the vodka <laughs> brand. No, that's a real brand. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, wow. that's a real brand. It's like Zelensky on the cover is crying and everything else. Um, but Mark, welcome to the show, man. I'm glad you're joining us. I want to get into the IAEA thing. I'm fascinated by this. Um, so you have an IAEA meeting that's basically taking place in D.C. The Russian delegation wants to come, and instead, we don't supply them visas to come. Now, this is at the exact same time where the Zabrosia nuclear power plant was basically being attacked by Ukraine. This is also coming at the time where Russia is saying that Ukraine was trying to come up with a dirty bomb, and they were in the last stages of it. And uh, how do you disinvite these guys? Right here, this is Blinken, Blink, and this is Ned Price, Ned Price, goofball, Ned Price. Secretary Blinken met yesterday with Rafael Grassi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency. They spoke about the dangers of global security stemming from Russia's illegal, unprovoked war in Ukraine. So you are directly attributing the group, the IAEA meeting, to the issues associated with Ukraine, Zaporozhye power plant, all that stuff. And yet you don't invite the Russian delegation to the meeting. <laughs> what the hell? Give me your take on this. I find this to be amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, first of all, you know, the International Atomic Energy Agency is an international, uh, you know, uh, NGO, but one of the higher ones, tier ones that works under the auspices of the United Nations. Um, and it, you know, it, as it oversees it, you know, it plays the role of a uh, international a uh, nuclear watchdog, um, th it's hard to point to more important international organizations. And there is international legislation, you know, passed through the UN that says the uh, countries that host events for organizations, including the IAEA, are obligated to provide visas uh, for members of that organization to attend events with that organization. Of course, the U.S. doesn't care. When has the U.S. ever cared about the international legislation or treaties that they've signed up to before? And I, I mean, it's particularly egregious with the, the, the case of, of this particular organization and this particular subject. The subject of the conference was nuclear power in the next century, right? And it, I mean, there's really no uh, there's no uh, doubting it. I mean, the, the the statistics are out there. Uh, it is Russia that builds more nuclear power plants around the world for other countries under the you know aegis of of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty than any other country. So there's two levels to this. One is the geopolitical pettiness of the we're at war, but we're not really at war with you, right. um, uh, United States uh, over the conflict in Ukraine, simply being petty and denying the visas, right? Uh, you know, despite their obligation to do so. Uh, and that certainly calls into question the U.S.'s, you know, the idea that countries should continue to allow the U.S. to host international forums like the United Nations uh, in New York, like uh, meetings like this, when it subjects the attendees to to a, a geopolitical pettiness test. Um, and, and other countries have seen this before. Russia has dealt with it for, you know, the last uh, couple of years. But but Iran uh, and others of uh, Venezuela have long dealt with it. Um, so the second side of it is as the leading uh, builder of nuclear power plants for, you know, for peaceful purposes around the world, it is, of course, is the major and a larger competitor than Western firms 
such as um, uh, Westinghouse, right, that also build nuclear power plants. So this is where the mafia bit comes in. We're not going to allow Russia to attend because you know, they uh, uh, actually produce more nuclear power plants for the 21st century, right? Nuclear power for the 21st century than our own companies. And, you know, we, we want to we want to prevent them from even talking to potential customers. Mm, that's unfortunate, to put it mildly. I mean, like you said, some things should be beyond just the kind of petty politics of it all, um, especially with the idea that these guys were talking about climate change. Like it's it's almost comical on some level right here. It says the International Atomic Energy Agency is kicking off, blah, blah, blah. The conference will provide a forum for ministers, policymakers, senior officials, and experts to engage in high-level dialogue on the role of nuclear energy in the transition to clean energy sources and its contributions to sustainable development and climate change mitigation. Okay. At the time where they're talking about climate change mitigation, you have Europe that's talking about burning wood in order to keep people warm. You have them reopening coal facilities over the matter of nuclear power facilities. And you have their transition fuel. And this notion of, oh, we're going to do all of these things for climate to basically take now a backseat to basically a war that didn't necessarily need to happen. Give me your take on the way that these guys were willing to basically get rid of all of these climate change um, uh, uh, high ideals um, at the moment that the U.S. comes barking at them about a war. Yeah, I mean, again, Russia is the largest producer of, of nuclear power for other states out there, right? Right. And uh, climate change, uh, uh, nuclear power is commonly viewed, including by climate change, uh, you know, scientists and organizations as an important stop gap measure, right, uh, uh, to end the use of fossil fuels. I mean, particularly coal and oil, uh, you know, gas as well. Uh, nuclear power is, is viewed as we ramp up use of renewables. Uh, 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 nuclear power would, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, while it's got its own problems, of course, you know, the dangers of nuclear power inherent, uh, it is far less uh, dangerous to, to the climate by most estimates than, than fossil fuels. So it's viewed as, as something we'll use, uh, for a time as we transition theoretically, because we don't have the technology yet to a completely renewable, you know, uh, energy, uh, system. Um, and, you know, to, you know, w we have that on one side and, you know, the largest producer and on the other side, we have the simple petty notion of, uh, you know, F Putler, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's yeah. what we're reduced to all of those, uh, you know, ideas of the values of climate change go out the door next to hmm, Russia is our competitor and F Putler. That's it. <laughs> um, I want to go to something else. The forces in Romania. So right here, the deployment of U.S. forces in Romania increases danger for Russia and Moscow. We're taking into consideration when ensuring its own security, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters. Now, this has to do with the 101st Airborne being basically moved to Romania. Um, they were saying it's the first move in like 80 years, give or take. Um, what? Give me your take on this. What's the point of moving these forces? This is all just the kind of show, hey, we're in it. We, in case anything goes on or there's some kind of escalation between Russia and Kiev, what? They're going to get involved? Is that the thought? That you're going to bring the 101st Airborne in to do what? Bomb Moscow? I mean, what is the thinking behind this move? Is it just projection or is it just, you know, optics of showing that the U.S. is further involved in this? Or is there a real risk of these guys getting involved or creating some kind of pretext to get involved? Okay, so I mean, uh, the 101st Airborne has already been there for several months. Although you know they're they're building up the amount of troops they have there, right? And they're they're a light infantry, 
right? They're, they're supposed to go in, be able to go in tomorrow or tonight even. That's the idea. Yeah. And according to the CBS uh, interview that was just done with them there, and I believe that this was purposeful signaling, this was a very publicly you know, presented, uh, they said uh, they are not there for a peacetime deployment. They are there for a combat deployment. They're prepared to go, their people there are prepared to go to war with Russia. Um, and they went on to list, you know, the, the conditions that, that, that would happen if, you know, uh, in particular, because of their placement, Russia attacked NATO in, in this case, Romania. Okay. I think we can all agree that Russia has enough problems in Ukraine and is not going to invade Romania right. or Peoria or, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Oakland or a- anywhere else in the, in the near time soon. Uh, but you know that the other condition was an an unspecified escalation by Russia, and that that is the type. Oh, oh, I I see that language there. What does that mean? Right. That means whatever we define it as. Okay. Um. And uh, the CBS report specifically then focused on a particular geopolitical aspect where uh, they talked that Russia was planning on taking Odessa, uh, depriving a, say a rump, uh, Ukraine, a Kiev regime state, uh, of uh, its last major port city on the black sea. And I, I believe that that is true sometime in say the next year or so year, year and a half of, of this conflict, presuming it goes on. Um, but it's very, uh, interesting the way it was brought up something that's not normally talked about in the media, right? Uh, it's very specific, and it was brought up in the context of the 101st Airborne and their rapid deployability. So let's say that there is some escalation by Russia, like say a dirty bomb goes off and is blamed on Russia, which is has zero battlefield utility, right? Uh, and, you know, this supposedly coming from the country in the world with the most nuclear and tactical nuclear weapons. Dirty bomb has no utility, right? First of all, even a nuclear weapon doesn't have any utility in this conflict, right? Um, you know, unless it goes nuclear um, uh, between the West and Russia. But a dirty bomb uh, in particular, right? This is an act of, of political terror. It's to create a political incident. An incident that would be, ooh, Russia, say, tried to set off a tack nuke and they're so bad at it that it malfunctioned and it's a dirty bomb, right? That is an escalation. And that would create the event political extremists that would be used domestically to justify a change in uh, policy of sending maybe not a NATO intervention uh, into Ukraine because there wouldn't be enough support, you know, in the unanimity of NATO for that. But let's say the U.S. and Poland, which I find extremely plausible and has been talked about ad nauseum by U.S. and Polish officials, particularly in the context of use of a nuclear weapon by Russia. I mean, we heard Joseph Burrell, the uh, uh, high foreign policy uh, muckety-muck of the EU, um, uh, say that this would uh, you know, uh, lead uh, the West to annihilate Russian forces. Uh, this is the scenario that I see being telegraphed and signaled here. We're going to create a false flag event. And then we're going to send the 101st Airborne into Odessa 
a Russian-speaking and Russian-leaning city that has lived under the political repression of the U.S.-backed putsch regime in Kiev since 2014 to prevent a eventual Russia move in that direction. And while Russia would make a lot of noise about a Western, a U.S.-Polish incursion into West Ukraine, ultimately they probably wouldn't do that much about it because they don't really want to go into West Ukraine to begin with. Because unlike in East Ukraine, in West Ukraine, you know. Uh, the vast majority of the population there hates Russia and Russians as part of their national identity concept, quite the opposite of East Ukraine. So, uh, but Odessa is a very different matter. And U.S. setting up shop in Odessa on the Black Sea would be seen as an unacceptable national security threat to Russia. And then there, they, what do you do? That is the World War III scenario that keeps me up at night. And it's all about Odessa. And I see the 101st Airborne right there in Romania, primed, you know, uh, geographically for that type of incursion, you know, um, uh, in that area of the theater um, and talking about their mobility and talking about Odessa. I see a whole lot of signals being sent. Hey, Mark, it's Malik here. What do you think about, um, there was Russia's ambassador to international institutions in Vienna. We were talking about the IAEA, and that's where um, it's actually based. And I can't, I'm probably going to get the guy's, the ambassador's name, Mikhail Ulyanov. Ulyanov. Um, he recently said that Russia is generally supportive of the idea of creating a secure zone around the Zaporizhia um, nuclear plant. What do you think, is that significant? And if so, how significant is it in, as in the context of the operation itself? Because, you know, essentially what they're saying is that, you know, you can't shoot from the territory of the nuclear station, nor can you shoot at it, you know. And I'm saying this in the, also in the context of um, Russia sabotaging itself so many times over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I think that this uh, statement uh, by Ulyanov um, is, is uh, shall we say, a diplomatic speak. Um, there is no real conditions for this. Russia has not been firing out of the nuclear power plant because they don't have any heavy weapons stationed there. And even British intelligence has, has uh, actually uh, exposed that. Uh, the British government, uh, you know, uh, w when this was a bit more in the headlines a bit over a month ago, uh, says uh, they released a commercial because they never released their own military satellites, but released commercial satellites saying Russia said we don't they don't have any heavy weapons uh, in the, the uh, you know, direct vicinity of the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. But here they are. And they showed a picture which they even identified as Russian APCs, armored personnel carriers, and uh, Russian uh, trucks, right? Trucks, like, like mil basic military trucks. And they said, look, here's the Russian heavy weapons. And I'm like, those are APCs. Those are, those are exactly uh, what is used to transport the light troops that are put there to protect the plant, right? I mean, that's, uh, the, the, it, it was uh, uh, absolutely absurd. It was actually the British proving the opposite of what they were saying. However, the Kiev regime has been shelling this plant, all right, a combination of shelling and uh, kamikaze drones. Um, they've been shelling it from actually across 
the Kohovka Reservoir on the exact side of it. This is long-range artillery, right? A safe zone around this nuclear power plant wouldn't do anything. The Kiev regime has been shelling this plant from a distance for close to three months now while denying they're doing it and claiming that it's Russia shelling their own troops in the plant that they control in order to create a nuclear, uh, you know, um, a dirty bomb or blast, right? Killing their own troops to blame Ukraine. I mean, that's that that's the type of, of pablum uh, that is fed and, and the Western main media uncritically reports. So unfortunately, the reality is unless if a safe zone around the plant was to include a range of, you know, let's say 100, 150 kilometers outside the plant, it 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 would it would be useless, uh, and that's why I don't believe that Russia has any serious intentions of going through with this. We see I, there have been at least five attempts right by now by the Kiev regime to send commandos in speedboats and ferry barges across the reservoir there, where Ukraine controls the north side, uh, or the Kiev regime, and Russia controls the south side. Um, and to seize control of the power plant by commandos that way. They've all been stopped with egregious, ridiculous losses uh, on the Kiev regime side, but they haven't stopped it. There was just another one in the last week attempted to do this. And uh, that a safe, a safe zone around the plant wouldn't, wouldn't do anything to prevent these types of attacks that we're continually seeing. Uh, of an attempt to seize control of the plant, more of the artillery shelling. So it, it, it's kind of a moot point as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's you know, what is done in diplomatic circles, what things that are said, uh, but has no real bearing on, on facts on the ground. Russia is not going to give up the security of that plant because of, I mean, it, you don't give a, a nuclear power plant back to a regime that has been shelling it for two and a half months in an attempt to create a nuclear incident. No, you do not. Let me ask you this. The dirty bomb thing. <clears throat> I am very curious on what you think is going on behind the scenes. I mean, the West is basically saying, oh, we don't believe this. We don't think that's the case. But I don't believe for a moment that any of these guys believe that Russia will be con contacting them, meaning Shogu, um, Shogu. Sergei Shogu is hitting up all of these diplomatic leaders. I mean, with the United States, the UK, uh, for that matter, Turkey, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, even France, basically saying, look, get your boy in order. These guys are talking about a massive escalation yeah. in the sense of a dirty bomb. And all things been equal, of course, the West comes out and says, oh, this is not true. We don't believe this at all. But I wonder what's going on behind the scenes in this. Do you think that these guys are contacting Ukraine saying, hey, stop? Or... Do you think it's the opposite where they would give a pat? I mean, up to this point, any and everything that has happened, they blame Russia. Why do you keep hitting yourself? Why do you keep hitting yourself? It makes no sense. It's lazy. They don't even try to come up with some rationale for this kind of false flag stuff. All things been equal. They just said, no, you did it. It's all the Spider-Man thing. Oh, this is you. Um, do you think they, they're really that? Look, from my perspective. The Ukrainian government is an existential situation. From their point of view, this is existential. We are basically losing our territory, and we have no idea what is this going to look like when we leave out, nor do we have Western backing in order to end the conflict, meaning to come to some sort of resolution. And it's almost as if the West, does the West want them to die quietly? Meaning in this situation with the nuclear bomb stuff, is this something where they are internally basically saying no? Or is this something that they are basically saying they give a pass to? 
I mean, I'm unclear what's going on behind the scenes. And I know you don't necessarily know what's going on in those meetings. But what what do you think is going what's what do you think the reality of this is behind the scenes in regards to the way that the West is taking this particular threat? Yeah, I mean, I, I, they're clearly, uh, you know, completely in on this and, and they're simply not admitting it. I, I, I think that is 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 patent. You know, of course, they're not going to admit it of course not. because how could they admit that the regime that they're supporting is doing this? The regime that they're supporting has been attempting to create exactly a dirty bomb incident by shelling in particular uh, spent fuel containers in the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant for almost three months now. Right. I mean, and they have been denying that. Right. Uh, You know, despite how obvious it gets, the press has even started just denying it. Shells, shells exploded. Right. Without (laughs) even trying to say who did it, because it's patently obvious at this point who did it. Right. Um, So um, there's again, there's all this signaling. This is exactly the type of signaling that we saw in Syria, right. where Chemical the U.S. Weapons. says, yeah. "Yeah, the only reason we would do airstrikes, we would get directly involved, is if a chemical weapon goes off. You know, even something as innocuous as say chlorine gas that can easily be got off the street, right? right? You know, and 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 provide right, and then lo and behold, there is a." chemical gas attack, uh, you know, with the white helmets and everything else that uh, is uh, shady from Six Ways of Sunday. And then there's all these, uh, you know, whistleblowers, uh, you know, within uh, the uh, chemical weapons watchdog saying that, you know, there's no evidence that any of this happened, but it gave the U.S. the, uh, you know, the, the pretext, the red line crossing that it said that it required to launch airstrikes in Damascus. And when this is exactly what we're seeing again, and we've heard exactly these statements uh, from the EU high foreign policy muckety-muck, from the Polish foreign minister, from uh, Petraeus speaking on national TV. We've heard it out of, out of uh, you know, um, you know uh, less specific things from Biden himself and the White House spokesman. This is signaling, right? They are creating the narrative framework for this chain of events. They've seen the Russian reserves being called up. They know that within another six weeks that they will be moving onto the battlefield. Another at least 300,000 uh, to 500,000 when, when all you know the, the extra volunteers and, and the extra active duty military able to be deployed. And it's a real game changer because it will effectively double or to close to triple the amount of Russian uh, troops uh, that are on the battlefield. Uh, and you see what they've accomplished with just 150,000 force, plus the new campaign to uh, cripple the Kiev regime's electrical infrastructure, thus inhibiting their logistics to their ability to move things around by railroad, which is powered by electricity. These are big things that, and the West sees that its own ability to continue to supply the regime with what it needs, right? Artillery shells, artillery pieces, rocket systems, uh, uh, tanks, infantry, fighting vehicles, it's gone. I mean, the Western media is full of stories saying we're out of stuff. We don't have anything left to send. What we have left is, you know, like main battle tanks is of no use to them because of the training time required or fighter jets or the like. So what is left? The only thing left is a direct intervention, right? And this is a bit down the road, but, you know, it's looking six months uh, into the future of this conflict where it's going. And they're seeing that they have zero options left except direct intervention. So how do we do an about face 
and provide the pre the political justification, the pretext to do that. U.S. has a long history of false flags. And I don't believe this would be in we're going in to fight the Russians. It would be we're going in to create a safe zone because of Russian escalation, right? That's the way it would be done. And then basically daring, okay, we're in Odessa. The 101st Airborne is there. Uh, what are you going to do about it? Are you now going to attack American troops, right? A lot like what Russia did in Syria. Um, when they uh, sent troops into Syria and like, OK, we're here, we're defending you know, our, uh, this country against your jihadi proxies. Are you now going to attack us? Um, you know, that's the type of situation. And like, again, uh, West Ukraine is one thing. Uh, but um, I see the U.S. West as being fully involved in this. And we've heard um, some very interesting details lately. Uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, government has released that they have. Uh, intelligence on communications between Kiev uh, and the British uh, uh, Defense Ministry talking about the transfer of nuclear technologies, meaning, you know, exactly what would be required to do this. We've also heard directly from the British Defense Minister suddenly in the last few days announce publicly that his communications with the U.S. have been compromised. I saw that. And he's flying. He's flying to Washington. We've also seen a um, uh, a conversation that was that took place between the British Defense Minister Wallace and what he believed to be uh, his counterpart in Ukraine, but was actually these infamous pranksters, Vovin and Lexus. He believed it to be his counterpart, and they were talking about the assistance. And then uh, the you know uh, these uh, pranksters pretending uh, uh, evidently uh, you know uh, convincingly to be the Ukrainian uh, defense minister started inquiring about nuclear uh, you know the possibility of nuclear weapons and uh, the, re the 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 response from Ben Wallace was telling it was like uh, we have to be very careful with that that those were his words right <laughs> all right it wasn't a no, we can't give you nuclear weapons. We're a part of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty, right? You're an unarmed nuclear power. This would be a third world nuclear. And no, we can't do that, right? You know, don't even talk about it. No, it was like, um, yeah, we want to provide you with everything necessary, but we have to be very careful with that. I, I urge you to go back, and, you know, to find that and read the exact uh, hedging wording that was being used at the time. These all send up red flags yeah. to me. And it makes it clear to me that that the West knew perfectly well they've done the signaling. They may have even provided the assistance. Now they're being called on it. Do they still go through with it or not? Or do they now look for another pretext? One, one would hope that they just give up entirely, but I'm not exactly counting on that. Uh, whether it's an eventual dirty bomb or attack nuke or some other type of extremist incident, maybe one of Saddam Hussein's chemical weapons shows up, you know, <laughs> um, that, you know, any, or a, a biological weapons laboratory, right? Not the ones that we have in Ukraine, but, you know, some Russian one or something. Uh, that, that is, it, I, I, I see a lot of signaling towards that the West is uh, talking about sending uh, you know, troops, not not these, quote, mercenaries, quote, unquote, that are appearing on the battlefield in thousands, uh, uh, but direct uniform troops with all of their gear and everything. And and the 101st Airborne, a light infantry would be a, a first first in quick in 
creating facts on the ground type of scenario, kind of like a, a human tripwire. Hey, Mark, you, you mentioned uh, projecting six months out, and now we're talking, well, you know, the possibility of U.S. involvement in some way. Um, we don't know, you know, exactly kind of projecting yeah. it out. But what do you make of, or, or does this explain, if we're projecting six months out, um, yesterday, well, in the last hour, I was talking about State Department spokesperson Ned Price when asked specifically about whether or not Palestinians have the right to resist the illegal occupation of their land, he kind of, you know, demurred a little bit. But he often talked about how um, the U.S. will support Ukraine against Russia. My question to you is that also on yesterday, he made another statement when he was asked about Russian, um, U.S. supporting peace talks. he didn't really answer the question. And in fact, he essentially said that he left it up to Ukraine. You know, if Ukraine wants peace, if they want peace talks, then that's a good idea. Um, But we've kind of seen both Washington and London essentially um, dissuade Zelensky um, from entering peace talks with Russia. Do you think that this is, as we're talking about pretexts and projecting six months out, do you think that this is why the U.S. doesn't have a strict um, a, a position that I'll say that the progressive wing of the caucus had earlier yesterday when they said before they making were, their shame faced <laughs> U-turn. Yeah, I mean before being yesterday, the whip, the whip is cracked. Yeah, the progressive right. back in the line. No, I I, I, I think I, that I, I, I can, can you. I, I, can you see a picture of Nancy Pelosi in dominatrix gear with a whip in hand, literally cracking the progressives oh, across the that's back? That's pretty sexy, Mike. Get back in line! Yeah, that's Get right. Mama Bear. Get back in line! Do what Mama Bear tells you to do. <laughs> right. but, but do you think that this is why the U.S. isn't taking a very, you know, um, definitive position saying, yes, let's enter peace talks? I mean, because people in the U.S. obviously are sedan and we have the progressive wing of the caucus who believes it even though they may perform differently on TV, but they believe it. But do you think that this is why they're taking that position, not being hard-lined on it? Sure. I mean, we've heard literally from from officials in the U.S., the EU, and the U.K., all saying that a peace on Russian terms is not acceptable, that only a peace on Ukrainian terms is acceptable. And what the Kiev regime has been saying is that only the Kiev regime uh, getting back control of of Crimea, which, uh, you know, has been part of Russia since 2014, now would be considered a victory, right? No one is interested in peace at this point. There there is no push by peace, by by Kiev, uh, by Russia, by the West. No one. No one is interested in peace because uh, this is going to be solved on the battlefield. And we've heard this, right, literally from, say, again, Joseph Burrell, the high foreign policy muckety-muck of the EU, this will be decided on the battlefield. Ukraine must win on the battlefield. And we've heard from uh, Mark Milley, the U.S. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, last week say directly that what is at stake if uh, Russia wins in in Ukraine, that is the end of our rules-based order. Yes. That, that, those words again, not the international order set upon by the UN or anything like that, but the U.S.'s rule-based order, which is code for U.S. global hegemony. Right. They view their global hegemony on is on the line, right, here in Ukraine and also with Taiwan, with China, right, which they are using in their efforts to contain, right, 
yeah, you know, the pressure cooker, as Rand calls it, against, uh, you know, militarize both of those areas uh, against uh, Russia and China, respectively. And if you believe that your control of the world is contingent on Ukraine winning and you're continuing to provide them weapons, you know, $50 billion worth of, of weapons and then economic aid on top of that to prop up the regime, pay the salaries, right? Uh, you're you're not interested in peace. This yeah. isn't about peace. And until there is a definitive win on the battlefield, which would mean at this point, one side is completely exhausted and defeated, you're not going to see uh, there, I mean, there will be a diplomatic settlement at the end. I mean, as long as it doesn't end in an exchange of nukes, but that end is a long way away and it only comes after enough facts are created on the ground and enough facts have not been created on the ground by a large margin. Yeah. Uh, we're, from, this, I've, I said it back in February, this is going to go on for years. Yeah. And from their standpoint, I mean, the U S is not, I mean, I forget the name of the congressman who basically made the point of basically saying, look, it's cheap for us. We give them weapons, we give them money, and they go out there and basically get themselves killed on our behalf. What's the issue? And that's, yeah, and we get we uh, well, we give them weapons. We're giving money to our own defense industry, which is building the weapons, which is just recycling the money in the economy. Yeah. And what's more, the EU economy is tanking, and because of the energy costs, their businesses are now moving to the, the U.S. US. Yep. And 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 bringing investment and business and reducing one of our economic competitors, who also happens to be a geopolitical ally in the process. But you know, them's the shakes, and the hegemon <laughs> always finds a way to win. Right? Well, like I said, the U.S. doesn't have peer nations. Like we don't have buddies that tend to be equals. Anybody who's a friend of ours tend to be a baffle state. You know, it's just kind of the way it, it works in practice. And like you said, it's a win-win on some level. Yes, we're taking economic hit and everything else, but all things being equal, many of those companies are going to be deindustrialized de from the standpoint. Look Europe. At, look at U.S. LNG sales to Europe, the you know, which which Macron is now suddenly upset that those sales, it costs four times what, <laughs> it, you know, the energy <laughs> domestically uh, to what you're providing us with. And We're I'm supposed- like, what did you expect, Macron? Yeah. Right? You could have been getting pipeline gas from Russia, but you don't want that. And the U.S. blew up the pipelines just to make sure that you don't even have the option anymore. By the way, you don't suck it up. Is it a client state? Is it? A, I know, right? Sucking up your client state. It's like now they're realizing, hey, we're we're supposed to be in this together. And you guys are, <laughs> are, are, are making money hand over fist on our expense. Hey, it's like they're shocked by that. Did did you did you catch in the headlines we were talking about Raytheon Technology? Oh, you made the, a killer. Raytheon Technology. Mark, uh, they posted a near. year-on-year surge in the third quarter revenue. They grew to about $16.95 billion based largely on its missile and defense contracts. People are making money. They're making a killing. (laughs) No pun intended. War, war, War is a business. Someone always makes money. And here, you know, U.S. lives, or not too many of them anyway, uh, are, are, are not even uh, on the line, no. right? It's Ukrainian proxies' lives that are on the line. So, you know, for the U.S., this is a win-win. Let me ask you this, and I, I love, this story is amazing to me. Ukrainian finances. I mean, part of those strikes, or the missile strikes that have been taking place over the last week or so, have been, like you say, hitting the energy grid. Now, like you said, part of that has to do with troop movements. But I suspect part of that also is making life miserable for the government to continue fighting in and of itself. Um, And, you know, they've lost a severe amount of territory. And as that, they have less, let's say, 
power need to go around, meaning they can use the power that they have in order to deal with the rest of the country that they have at their disposal. But even then, well, like 40, 50 percent of the power grid has basically been hit. So the question came up, how much money do they need to keep going? Now, these guys are basically saying they need around $9 billion to keep going. They're not able to pay their pensions. They've been running the printing presses just in order to pay the military to keep it going. So hyperinflation is an issue. Um, this gentleman, Alexander Rodnieski, um, a Ukraine aide to Zelensky, told German media um, group Funk on Tuesday, right here, he says, quote, we believe Germany could take about $500 million a month, unquote. He said, adding that it would be especially necessary in 2023, quote, the state has the function, pensions have to be paid. Now, here's another part. It hopes to get around, Kiev hopes to get around $2 billion per month from the EU as a whole, the German outlet added. It is unclear whether the sum would balloon further in the future since Ukraine expects inflation to reach 24.5% in 2022, according to the nation's central bank. And they're basically saying, look, we're having energy requirements, we have money requirements, and Germany is supposed to fund this while simultaneously not having the ability to know whether they're going to be able to keep their own people warm or keep their own energy markets going, meaning Germany is expected to give money to Ukraine to keep their energy markets going and generators and all this other stuff while simultaneously not being able to keep their own energy going. Isn't that weird? It's astonishing. Give me a take on the, uh, on the economics of this from the standpoint of Ukraine or for that matter, even Europe. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we we've seen the the numbers uh, uh, come out of of uh, the the World uh, Economic Forum, the World Trade Organization, showing that you know the Kiev regime economy is expected to decrease by some forty five percent this right. year, right? Um, I mean, and I I would actually expect it's probably going to be a bit uh, considerably higher than that when all is said and done, right? And you have, according to Kiev, a million men under arms, most of them conscripted into military. You've got to pay salaries, right? You've got to continue to buy weapons. Remember, a lot of this is being done on loans that some future uh, uh, government in Kiev is, is going to be expected to, to pay back, right? You know, all of this is, is costing money. Um, and, um, you know, you've still got to try to keep the electricity on and the heat on. And Ukraine isn't getting any energy from Russia. They, they require uh, energy uh, and uh, economic funds to pay salaries uh, from from the West. They are a complete proxy at this point. They are not a sovereign, sustainable regime. I mean, they haven't been actually since 2014. But, you know, now it's reached to the point where, you know, they they are completely dependent on an EU, which doesn't have enough energy to keep their own citizens warm, to also provide energy to the, you know, 25 to, to 30 million uh, Ukrainians uh, that are, you know, under the control of of the the uh, Putsch regime in Kiev as well. Um, I, I don't even I, I don't see where the juggling is is even going to happen there. How 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 do you you do that? I mean. Let's face it. Western governments are getting through this in Europe by debt spending. Yeah. Right? I mean, Germany, which is already 200 uh, percent of their GDP into debt, is more debt spending. This is all being done on debt spending. Um, and the debt spending is just getting ridiculous at this point. Uh, yeah. I don't it's no it's not economically sustainable. The question is, will it lead to an immediate economic collapse? That's, uh that's all it is. Last question before we head out, Mark. I mean, from your take on this, uh, what's taking place in Moscow right now? Meaning, what is the conversation that's taking place on Moscow media regarding the Ukraine issue? 
I'm just curious. Uh, we have about a minute yeah. left, minute and a half left, give or take. Um, I mean, what you hear on the political talk shows of, of you know, uh, the Sunday equivalent of the Sunday political talk shows is why don't we, why aren't we hitting them with everything we have right now? Oh. I mean, that's the, that's the question. Why aren't we ending this quick? Right. And the polls show continued support. I mean, uh, high support for the president. I saw the last presidential approval rating is down from 83 to 77%, which is, of course, still ridiculously high. I predicted, I believe on your show, a 5% drop. Right. And I was one off. It was a 6% drop. But with 77% of the country, uh, you know, s- supporting the SMO, uh, you know, under whatever new terms it exists under, uh, none of that is changing. And, and, the, the mood in in uh, Moscow and even higher in the rest of Russia, uh, because Moscow is actually the most liberal city in Russia, is, uh, you know, uh, it's a war. It's a wartime attitude. Basically. And they want it over with quick and heavy. Yeah, it's a war. Act like it's a war. Get it over with. Mark, thank you, man. Always appreciate these conversations. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one and Definitely check out his new YouTube channel at RealPolitik with Mark Sloboda. You can also find him on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gramsci. We're going into the last hour. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Love talking to Mark. Always love talking to Mark. Um, like I said, the hours like he's just. He has a way of explaining that stuff in honest terms. And it's like, like, for example, and I love getting into different takes. Ritter had somewhat of a different take on this. Ritter's thing was, look, behind the scenes, the military is not going to be for this, et cetera, et cetera. But again, there's a distinction between what a military person would do versus what the political or let's say the civilian um, political body would do. Oftentimes they're dealing with politics. The military is dealing with real world phenomena on the ground that they themselves are going to have to grapple with. Um, It is harrowing to hear this idea that Odessa is going to be a potentially flame spot on whether or not this thing escalates into just ridiculousness. Um, so I don't know. I It is un- unfortunate, to put it mildly, that we're in this particular position. And we're in this position in a way without really even any dialogue on it. Yeah. I mean, Biden just kind of, you know, they ran with us. Mm-hmm. And then the American public was kind of like, OK, we're dealing with Ukraine now. Um, and now the president is screaming about Armageddon. Um, the Russia is talking about Dirty bombs. And the Progressive Caucus is talking about peace negotiations. <laughs> and then they take it back. I love your, your point about, it's like, well, the position they had yesterday. <laughs> in one day, it flipped. Hours. It, it, yeah, an hour. Just bam, immediately. Oh, they got criticized. And all of a sudden, they basically um, 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 capitulated. Unfortunate. Right. Well, let's, let's get, get to life. some domestic yep. news. The Biden administration's optimism has dwindled given the research organizations, including the 538 Project, projects a likely Republican majority in the House of Representatives, the report said on Tuesday. The White House now puts the Democrats' chances of keeping control of the Senate at 50-50. However, President Joe Biden still believes Democrats have a strong shot 
at retaining control of Congress and the administration is publicly sticking to an optimistic message. As I've said before, chances are we, well, I won't say chances are, there's a debate if we will win the Senate after last night's performance between uh, Fetterman and Oz. Things may change a little in Pennsylvania, but we don't know that yet. Democrats will absolutely lose the House, though. That is a guarantee. You heard it here first. Billionaire industrialist Elon Musk might ask, might actually seal the deal on his purchase of social media giant Twitter later this week. He told a group of financiers working with him on the purchase that it will be completed by the October 28 deadline set by a judge. Musk made the pledge during a Monday conference call with a group of seven Wall Street lenders by Morgan Stan led by Morgan Stanley, who are providing $13 billion worth of debt financing to grease the wheels of the deal, according to Bloomberg. An undisclosed source also told Bloomberg that the banks expected to receive a borrowing notice on Thursday and the cash would be held in escrow. U.S. President Joe Biden's approval ratings have dipped just a little bit more in the past few weeks. A new Reuters poll has revealed, according to the two-day national poll, a dismal 39%. I'll repeat, 39% of Americans approved of Biden's job performance, a percentage point lower than just a week ago. Biden's unpopularity is helping drive the view that Republicans will win control of the U.S. House of Representatives and possibly also the Senate on November 8th. Control of even one chamber of Congress would give Republicans the power to bring Biden's legislative agenda to a screech in halt. U.S. Bath, Raytheon Technologies, one of the largest aerospace and defense manufacturers in the world by revenue and market capitalization, posted a 5% year-on-year surge in the third quarter revenue on just yesterday, Tuesday. Company sales grew to $16.95 billion during the period based largely on its missile and defense contracts, thanks in part to the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, as well as rising air travel demand, which buoyed, buoyed parts in service sales. The Raytheon Missile and Defense Unit reported third quarter adjusted sales of $3.678 billion. They were down 6% versus the previous year due to supply chain constraints and declines on some military programs. But the decrease was partially offset by higher volume on strategic missile defense orders. In international news, Western countries should not isolate Russia. On the contrary, they should establish direct communication with Moscow to resolve the exceptionally difficult current political situation. This is according to Norwegian Prime Minister Jonas Gar Store. He said this on Tuesday, quoting, There is nothing good in isolating Russia. It is alarming that today we have so few contacts and direct communication with Russia. Storr told this to the Norwegian parliament, and this was quoted by an NRK broadcaster. The lack of dialogue undermines the possibility of reaching a peaceful settlement in Ukraine, the Norwegian prime minister said, adding that the current political situation was the most difficult since World War II. China is taking strides towards complete reunification of the motherland. 
A spokesperson for Beijing's Taiwan, Taiwan Affairs Office stated on Wednesday, and I'm quoting here, we're closer than ever in history and we're more confident and capable than ever to realizing national, national rejuvenation. Mao Chaoguang said at a regular news briefing in Beijing without directly referencing Taiwan regarded by China as an inalienable part of its territory. Quoting similarly, we're also closer in history, closer than ever in history, as well as more confident and capable to realizing the complete reunification of the motherland. Joe Biden has welcomed the UK's new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, but that's not the name the 46th U.S. president used in his address. During the White House Diwali event on yesterday, Biden referred to the new UK leader as Rashi Sanuk. Rashi Sanuk. So says Joe Biden, just as the incoming PM was meeting with King Charles III and ta being tasked with forming a new government. Quoting Biden, we've got news that Rashi Sanuk is now the prime minister, Biden said. And he went on to say, in a very interesting way that no one can understand, he went on to say, as my brother would say, go figure. As Americans are saying, WTH. Finland's draft legislation on the country's accession to NATO, which is almost prepared, does not contain any restrictions on, on the establishment of military bases and deployment of nuclear weapons on its territory, local newspaper reported on Wednesday, citing sources. The legislation will allow for deployment of nuclear weapons of NATO countries and establishment of the alliance's military bases on the territory of Finland, putting no limits on NATO's military presence in the country. This is according to the newspaper. The draft legislation is expected to be considered by the Finnish parliament in two weeks. The International Atomic Energy Agency's the IAEA Ministerial Conference on Nuclear Power in the 21st Century is kicking off in Washington October 26th through the 28th. That is today through, is that Friday? I think I have my dates right. However, Russia's representative will not participate as a result of the U.S. government not providing them the necessary visas. The conference will, and I'm quoting, the conference will provide a forum for ministers, policymakers, senior officials, and experts to engage in high-level dialogue on the role of nuclear energy in the transition to clean energy sources and its contribution to sustainable development and climate change mitigation, IAEA said in a description on the event website. The Russian delegation, composed of representatives from the state energy corporation Rosatom, and the technical watchdog Rostegnazor planned to take part in the ministerial meeting but was not provided the necessary visas by the U.S. government. In Earth and Science News, we need a little bit of Earth and Science News. A UFO study, study by a team of NASA scientists began on Monday with researchers from various disciplines poring over unclassified data to better understand the aerial phenomena. After deca decades of secrecy, multiple governments, departments are now turning their attention to the skies, including the Pentagon. 
The Space Agency study brings together 16 researchers, including data scientists, oceanographers, physicists, physicists, astrobiologists, as well as a former fighter pilot and astronaut Scott Kelly. The study will only use unclassified data from civilian and commercial sources and does not aim to explain what UFOs, referred to by NASA as unidentified aerial phenomena, actually are, whether its findings will inform NASA on how best to study future sightings. On this day in history, 1863, International Conference begins in Geneva aimed at improving medical conditions on battlefields this was the beginning of the Red Cross. And in 1977, last natural, not last natural case of smallpox discovered in the Merka district, Somalia, considered the anniversary of the eradication of smallpox, the most spectacular success of vaccination. And in 2019, a raid by U.S. Special Forces kills ISIS founder Abu Bakr al al Baghdadi in Syria. These are your headlines for today, Wednesday. It's hump day, October 26th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Spooknik. Finished early. Yes. Yes, I finished just a little early. I was I was going through, you know, we kind of we didn't talk as early. But yeah, I mean it's it's we, we kind of talked about it with Mark. Yeah. But Raytheon. They're making a killing. A killing. I mean, all of that money. Because, look, the dirty secret is that wasn't just block money that went to Ukraine. Not all of it, anyway. Some of that was, okay, we need to back back our weapons, right? Mm -hmm. We need to replenish our supplies and everything else. And so it's so much money. Yes. Billions of dollars and so much money. And you think to yourself, what would that, what would, what would that look like if, was, if that was invested in us? Like, China was able to bring out 200 million people out of poverty in 20 years. When is the last time we had a poverty push to get rid of? I mean, like, why do we accept poverty as just kind of a natural, you know, phenomena as opposed to a monetary phenomena? $7.25 an hour minimum wage. And I just looked it up because I wanted to Google. Uh-huh. Do you know what the Department of Defense budget, annual budget is? Just take a guess. Annual budget, what, $500 billion or something like that? $700 billion? You're close. What is it? $1.94 trillion. Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> Ouch! And you know, like, half of that budget goes to, like, just personnel. Personnel and Raytheon. And Raytheon. And, and, defense, and these defense contractors. And by the way, the one point trillion, I really do strongly believe that a part of that is deterrence. Like, meaning it's like, God, U.S. spends that much money on their military. That military must be amazing. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like, the number— We're the best in, in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The number in and of itself it gets set across. It will scare you. It will, it's, it's supposed to be intimidating, yes. I guess. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But the catch is, are you really getting the bang for your buck? And I think that's the most interesting part. Like, oftentimes, wars change. I mean, meaning the military situation of various countries in wars alter. And your previous—like, for example, in the Second World War, France had this— military um, idea that was not indicative of reality of the new modern war. And so it's like all of this money that you're adding to it, it's not necessarily applying for the next war. It's almost applying for the wars that you fought in the past and how those things are going to be shaped. Um, There was a test that was done. I think it was, I want to say Norway, but I don't necessarily know if it's Norway. But our fleet was basically taken down in this war game thing because the the, um, thing that they were going against, I think it was a sub, wasn't using the typical way that subs use that are modern, but instead was... I think it was like gas powder or something like that. But it was so quiet that it was to take down all of our ships. Like, it's like we, 
we didn't for um we didn't forecast that that was going to be that situation was going to present. I guess my thing is the amount of money that companies charge, the amount of money, meaning sometimes this stuff is going to be overpriced. And is it a situation where the stuff is so overpriced or for that matter, um, does it do exactly what we needed to do? Meaning congressional members said, hey, we want these military contractors in our district, so we'll pay for those things without necessarily ensuring that we're getting the bang for the buck that we're supposed to be getting for it. That's the issue that I have with this. Like somewhere like China or Russia, they may pay their people less, but they may be getting more for the less that they're paying their people in regards to the military stuff. As someone I worked in, the, as I talked about, I worked in government. My last government job was at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Yeah. And I can tell you the amount of money that the U.S. government spends on unnecessary contractors is it would it would like it's astonishing yeah wow man i hope that stuff never comes to fruition well we need to figure out whether or not that stuff if we're really indeed getting the bang for the buck and if you're thinking about like the amount we're spending on missiles like what a million dollars per missile Mm -hmm. and these guys are firing these things off like hotcakes and we're just into replenishing mode yes replenishing our stockpile yes that we gave gave to ukraine you guys are listening to fault lines thomas um abdul back in a moment Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on a conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll try to take your calls at 945. But... Let's get into some domestic politics. And some of this domestic politics is fascinating to me. And one of those things was the debate that took place between Oz and Fetterman. If you remember, Fetterman had a stroke, did not necessarily want to have this debate. And after watching the debate last night, I think Malik made the point of saying it was painful to watch. And I have to agree with him. Um, I can perfectly understand why he didn't want to have that debate. But I want to get to that and some of the other domestic news that's on um, uh, on, the, on the marquee. So let's bring in our guest. We have Robert Patillo. He, Robert, attorney, Robert Hillard Patillo II, is the executive director of the Rainbow Push Coalition's Peachtree Street Project, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, Chocolate City. Robert has worked and advised Reverend Jesse Jackson for over 20 years and is highly sought after speaker and organizer in the field of civil and human rights. Robert, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, guys. I'm great. How are you? We are doing great. Better that you are with us. I want to show, I want to play part of this clip. This is just kind of a blitz through of um, Oz versus Fetterman. This is a contest that's taking place in um, Philadelphia. I'm sorry, Pennsylvania. Let's play the clip. I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. He's running to use Pennsylvania. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. I'm running for the U.S. Senate because Washington keeps getting it wrong with extreme positions. John Fetterman takes everything to an extreme, and those extreme positions hurt us all. 
This one is just for... What we have to do is ensure that we don't have increased inflation, and the best way to do that is reduce gas prices. John Fetterman has gone after the energy industry, called it a stain on Pennsylvania. He has never met an air, uh, uh, an oil company that he doesn't swipe right about. There should not be involvement from the federal government in how states decide their abortion decisions. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive. If you believe that the choice of your reproductive freedom belongs with Dr. Oz, then you have a choice. But if you believe that the choice for abortion belongs between you and your doctor, that's what I fight for. Will you pledge tonight to release those records in the interest of transparency? Uh, to me, for transparency is about showing up. I'm here today to have a debate. He keeps talking about Bernie Bernie Sanders. You know, three, year, three years ago, he was on his show and he hugged him and he said, I love this guy. You know what? Why don't you pretend that you, you live in Vermont instead of Pennsylvania and run against Bernie Sanders? Pennsylvania, both. I strongly support fracking, drilling, the piping of that natural gas. I do support fracking and I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. Let's up there. The fracking thing was pretty egregious, actually, because the announcer asked them and said, well, wait a minute. Initially, you said you didn't support fracking. When did that change? In which case you got, I support fracking. I support fracking. Oh, right. I support fracking without necessarily even fully understanding the question that was being asked him, or the very least what she was getting at, was you changed your position on this issue. And he didn't seem to have the capability of basically explaining that change. And yeah, he was right. Flubbing a few words is an understatement in this um, speech. Um, Robert, give me your take on this debate. I mean, this was somewhat difficult to watch. He clearly wasn't crisp. He wasn't the guy that I met what, four or five years ago when I think we were in Pennsylvania um, at a Temple University um, rally for Sanders. Different guy, different ability to communicate, different ability to kind of have those conversations. And it showed itself in a debate. Should the fact that he had a stroke, and this is basically showing up in this particular debate, should that influence the decisions of people who are basically voting on that election? What, give me a take on this. You know, it's it's interesting. I have a, um, a newfound perspective on this working for Reverend Jackson who, of course, was diagnosed with Parkinson's four or five years ago. So working with him closely and understanding what happens when somebody is robbed from that ability to uh, to articulate themselves, to speak, uh, so to say, particularly when you're used to building your life and building your career off of it, um, is difficult. It is painful. And I think that the uh, uh, one of the interesting things of this is I think that actually Oz pushed a little bit too hard on it to the point of turning it into a sympathy vote. Uh, for Fetterman. I think that similar to the Herschel Walker debate that we saw with Warnock several weeks ago, when people have certain expectations of you uh, and, that, and that when you're pushing too hard on someone who has limitations, as Herschel Walker has mental limitations and Dr. Uh, and Fetterman has um, the limitations as a result of a stroke, often you end up inspiring sympathy for that uh, for those people. I think that if you look at the, uh, some of the instant polling coming out of Pennsylvania, uh, you saw a lot of people say that they appreciated Fetterman standing up, still continuing to fight, pushing through that. Yeah. If you talk to people who have had family members who have had strokes or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, et cetera, um, that they uh, 
have a negative reaction to attacks on him based on his uh, health at the time. So I think that we'll see Poland coming out in the next couple of days. I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't be surprised if Fetterman picked up points as a result of people seeing him as that kind of Pennsylvania Philly fighter pushing through. Um, as far as substance in the debate, I think it was pretty light. I think all the debates we've seen this season have been pretty light on policy. I don't know what anyone's policy on Social Security is right now. I'm absolutely no idea what any Senate candidate in the country uh, uh, wants to do about entitlement spending, etc. We've kind of gone away from that in our politics. And I think because of that, it really does come down to personality, uh, down to who people trust, who people believe. And oddly enough, I think that Fetterman, by showing that fighting spirit, ended up coming out on top. That's interesting. I I don't necessarily disagree simply because we're talking about the sympathy vote. Um, I don't think that it's going to change that much because for all intents and purposes, Fetterman has been leading the entire time. Like he hasn't, there hasn't been a period where Oz actually um, was leading. And I think that the Republicans overall, they made a mistake. Instead of going with McCormick, who lost, I think, by 0.1 percentage points to Oz. It was like 31.1 to 31.05 or something like that. I mean, it was it was very close. And so I think that the Republicans should have nominated McCormick, and it would have been better. But I'm glad you mentioned um, Herschel Walker. I'm actually surprised at what's happening in Georgia. And I don't know. You're from Georgia, and maybe you can talk about it yourself. When I was doing just some research, the early voting numbers in Georgia, they're, I mean, they're, it's knocking past years out of the water. Yeah. But it's really specific to Georgia. Yes. In North Carolina, the early, no, in Virginia, the early vote is up from 2018. But in places like Texas, Texas is not. What do you think explains why, and especially when we're talking about Texas, because Texas has the largest percentage of the black population in the country, why do you think that there's a difference in the early vote between um, Texas and Georgia? Well, a couple reasons. One, organization, organization, organization. In Georgia, you have groups from Rainbow Push, NAACP, FCLC, uh, Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, Black Voters Matters, headquartered in Georgia, um, the uh, 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 Transformative Justice Coalition is uh, headquartered in Georgia. We have so many organizations on the ground, Fair Fight, um, New Georgia Project, etc. They have been pushing for the last two and a half years, ever since um, SB 202 wasn't even passed, but since it was even proposed. Um, that have been working on voter education and voter registration. Um, on my show, we've been telling people to vote early and vote often, as they say in Chicago, for uh, four months now, so that when it came time for early voting, we had already rolled out millions of dollars in ads of sold to the polls, buses, etc. Do the uphill battle that we were going to be fighting against. Uh, you don't see that in every state. If you notice, Georgia is, uh, for some reason, always kind of the center of American politics, which is weird to me. Uh, but it turns out that way. Secondarily, Georgia has two celebrity races going on at one time. You have uh, Abrams versus Kemp, Stacey Abrams. You know, she had Oprah in the state last week. Right, right. 
Obama here this week. That Kerry Washington, she was on stage with Lotto and uh, and Lizzo and etc. And on the other hand, you have Herschel Walker that is on every late night show for the past several months. When Keenan on uh, SNL is doing an impression of uh, Herschel Walker, you know you've entered the uh, national zeitgeist. So between the attention on the race and the level of organization we have in the state. That's why Georgia's, num- Georgia's numbers for early voters are so much higher than other states in the country. You know, and we talked about, in full disclosure, just so the audience know, I have been debating. We're now, Robert and I are in our fourth year of political debating. Um, so we've been doing this for a while. We talk all the time. We have a great relationship. We go back and forth. And I tell you, we get on television and we go back and forth hard. We've had you two here, by the way. Yes, yes. But we do have a level of respect for each other. And so I wanted to ask you, because we've talked about it um, before, but and I'm framing this in the context of Joanne Reed and Jamil right Hill's commentary <laughs> right about uh, Hispanic voters. Essentially, Jamil Hill said that, you know, they're voting for DeSantis and moving towards Republicans because their proximity to whiteness. And Joanne Reed made some kind of ridiculous comment, um, as she usually does. What it, it so you have these comments. You have the comments that are typically made about black men, black men who supported Trump or black men who were moving away from the Democratic Party. You have the comments Hillary Clinton made in 2016 about deplorables. You have, um, you know, Biden talking about, you know, existential threat or whatever. What is going on in the Democratic Party? Like, why do they continue to use these this very hot language to explain why people are moving away from the Democratic Party. Like, why do they continue to do this? Who are they talking to who says that this stuff is a good idea, especially when we're talking about black men? They are whipping up their base. They're whipping up their fundraisers. They're whipping up the donor class. Um, this is the same, you know, we both like equivalency. Uh, this is the same as the Tommy Tupperville whipping up his base or Marjorie Taylor Greene saying they're coming to steal your culture. Um, it's about whipping up that very centralized base of the party. And it does nothing to uh, bring over swing voters of moderate voters. You know, we've talked about this for years. I'm pro-life. I'm pro-gun. I'm a Southern Baptist Christian conservative how I grew up. Um, but the Republican Party kind of moved away from me. But when Democrats are saying, well, the only reason people are uh, supporting uh, Republicans is because they are the proximity to whiteness and white supremacy, well, that's stupid. A lot of Hispanic voters are uh, deeply Catholic, so the question of abortion is not one that is as uh, motivating for them to vote Democrat as I think many of them think. Um, many Hispanic voters, guess what? Their number one issue is not immigration. You would know that if you hired any Hispanic people that you work on these campaigns, instead of kind of talking to them, um, if you talk with them as opposed to at them, you would understand that many of them were small business owners. So when you're talking about taxes and regulations, you're kind of pushing them away because they feel that they want fewer taxes and regulations because that hurts their, them business-wise. I think Democrats have a very bad habit of just talking to focus groups at women's colleges uh, around the country and thinking that that's reflective of what the uh, base of the party is or what the base of the party always has been. Um, that the what actually wins elections is talking less and listening more, as they said in uh, in Hamilton, and understanding what people are actually motivated by. People, uh, Democrats missed the boat on this economic anxiety as a result of um, inflation. They should have spent the last six months explaining that. 
instead of doing January 6th hearings. But Robert, I think it's worse than that. Blacks make up, what, 90 percent of the vote for the Democratic Party, maybe you know higher, a little bit less. But that's on a random day. Meaning that's them not doing anything and they get that support. And you get Joe Biden saying stuff like, well, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. With this understanding that from the Democratic perspective, blacks are captured class from the standpoint of a voting block. I think they get the same thing or they have this idea about Hispanics being the same way. I mean, the idea that you're going to make this argument that the reason that Hispanics vote for DeSantis is because of their proximity. The whiteness is so beyond the pale. 30% of the people who voted for Obama turned around and voted for Trump. And Mm -hmm. how does she explain that? Is it because of blacks' proximity to whiteness? Are these all light-skinned blacks that are making this vote or making this transition? Of course it's not. Why do they get this? Why do they have this mindset that Hispanics are this kind of singular voting block in the same way that Democrat, um, that African Americans are? It seems like they're trying to lump both of these people or both of these groups into the same thing, and it's clearly not that that way. I mean, you can look at Arizona. The reason why um, Texas didn't go to Democrats was because of Hispanics. Hispanics. That was a vote that made that difference. If those numbers had went in the same way that, let's say, African-Americans or something to that effect, well, they would have been able to take Texas. Why do they do this? I mean, what is, I mean, it has to go beyond just the focus group stuff. It has, there's something deeper that I think is going on here, but I'm not quite sure to put my finger on what it is. Well, uh, well, a big part of it is uh, minority voters for uh, Democrats are very much like poor white voters for Republicans. Uh, you like to keep them motivated, but you don't have to want to do anything for them. Uh, so for for Democrats, you need to find a way to justify continued support from African-Americans and from Hispanic voters, despite doing absolutely nothing that you promised them. You know, if you think about it from the perspective of uh, Latino voters, you promised this DACA reform. It hasn't happened. You promised comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, hasn't happened. Harvest of halfway to citizenship hasn't happened. So why do I need to keep voting for you if you uh, aren't delivering on anything you said while you're passing a $1.7 trillion infrastructure bill that helped your friends out while you're concentrating on Roe versus Wade that helps, you know, wealthy white women out? Well, the, you have to find a justification for that. And uh, the only way to keep that going is you go straight into good old race hustling. And so the same way with, uh, with black voters, you didn't pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. You didn't pass the George Floyd Justice the Policing Act. Uh, you didn't pass the Tim Scott Justice Act or anything along those lines. So what do you go down to? Race hustling, because that's the easiest way to justify what you haven't done for your base. Same way with Republicans, when they haven't done any of the things they promised for the white working class voters in the country, you see the billionaire class getting uh, richer. You go straight to xenophobia, and they're coming to steal your culture and steal your kids and make all the frogs gay or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make all the frogs gay. Oh, I know. Quote from Alex Jones. Yeah, right. I know. And the gay frog thing. Yeah, Alex Jones thing is, yeah, I think it's just hilarious. Um, I, there's a topic we got to get to, progressive house Democrats. So on Tuesday, well, not Tuesday, I think it was the day before, they basically came out with a letter saying Joe Biden needed to come to some kind of, you know, he need, the U.S. should be a force to end the war, not necessarily to keep propagating the war. And they basically put out a letter from, I think it was 30 members saying, hey, it's time to come to some way of finding a resolution for this. Now, I thought ideologically this made all the sense in the world. These guys are supposed to be anti-war. And if you're looking at the issue that the American public care most about, immigration, I'm sorry, economics, inflation, with immigration being and number crime. three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take off that last one for a moment. The first two, economics and inflation. And whereas the Republican Party is getting credit for talking about this stuff, Democrats aren't. And it's a direct relation between Joe Biden's foreign policy and inflation, or for that matter, Joe Biden's foreign policy, or for that matter, um, economics. Well, within a day, these guys basically turned tail 
and changed their position, basically rescinding the letter, pulling the letter back, withdrawing it, and basically saying, look, we don't want any association between us and Republicans, and so we are withdrawing this letter. That is appalling to me. If indeed your constituent populations, for example, I made a point earlier today, African-Americans make up about, what, 10,000, maybe even 10, like from the standpoint of the wealth or the money that they have at their disposal, whereas on average, whites have like $180,000. And yet the populations that are being hit the most are the ones at the very bottom, and it's the constituents that they say they represent. Give me your take on this. Is, is it appalling that, that they pulled this letter back? Well, well the, 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 what's appalling is the lack of foreign policy knowledge that even our elected officials have. This goes both for the House Progressive Caucus and for Kevin McCarthy okay. on the Republican side of the aisle. Why the hell would you quit when you're ahead? That, that's the, that's why I don't quite understand about either of Kevin McCarthy's statement or the statement from the House progressives, because at the very time that you're seeing the uh, Hurston offensive regain uh, territory the size of Ohio, where you're seeing um, what happened in Kharkiv, uh, basically uh, making incursions both the Donbass and the Luhansk region, uh, where you're seeing the attack on the uh, Crimean bridge that's crippled Russian supply chains, literally, Ukraine is on the verge of pushing them out of their country. No, they're not. No, they're not. Not even close. They lost 20% of their territory to a, a force of, what, 120,000 people. And at this point, the Kharkov Offensive is over with, and Ukraine has lost like 100,000 people in that conflict. Meaning, yes, they were able to get certain terrorist attacks on Russian territory or the Kerch Bridge or whatever. But all things been equal, what are they doing now? Those people are getting killed in large mass. I mean, certainly you don't really believe. That Ukrainian military has gotten to the point where they're starting to take back their territory. They are basically at a standstill, and Russia at this point is bringing in um, their reserves. They couldn't beat an expeditionary force. How in the world are they going to beat the Russian military? Uh, hold, hold on. I, I, would, I would have agreed with you on that in August. Uh, but what we saw was that we entered a stalemate period in the war in mid-June. In July, we saw the Russians uh, entrenching in. When they swapped out troops in early September, that's when you saw the Ukrainian offensive take place. There's a reason that Putin is talking about uh, a false flag attack on the uh, Dnieper River Dam, uh, saying that they're gonna, uh, the Ukrainians are going to try to flood uh, the Kherson region. Right. Reason they're talking about setting off that someone's going to try to set off a dirty bomb um, because they're trying to set the stage for when that takes place. No, that's not why they're doing it at all. They're doing it because all things been equal. Ukraine has been shelling Zaporozhia power plant, which is trying to create an incident of a dirty bomb incident, and all things been equal, shelling the dam in order to try to break that dam so that stuff can flood that region. That's why they're bringing it up. It's not for false flag. Why on earth will Russia need to come up with a false flag incident at the point where they've basically taken twenty percent of the territory? Because they've been because they've been on their back foot going in reverse for the last two months. So if you look at what, uh, what's currently taking place on the ground, you have the uh, the calling up of the uh, troops. Uh, troops. Uh, Putin tried to find three hundred thousand new troops. You ended up having five hundred thousand people flee the country. Uh, you're seeing the continued results of the U.S. sanctions. They are they're taking effect on the Russian economy. You're wait, seeing- wait, wait, wait! The, the sanctions are taking. I think you need to read. Some of the publications that are coming out of Western journals, like The Economist, for example, who made the point of saying um, the U.S. and Western countries, especially in Europe, are getting decimated. I mean, look, the pound is going through the floor. The euro has dropped below the dollar. And you're in the situation where all things been equal. The Russian economy is basically stabilized. I mean, you're, I mean, this argument is against reality itself, um, Robert. 
No, no, this is the this is the actual reality that, that does exist on the ground. If you look at what's happening with the pound, that's more so a result of both Brexit and these conservative policies pushed through by the Trucian government. They're now being repealed by the new prime minister. But if you if you look directly at what's happening in Ukraine right now, uh, now we're seeing uh, Belarus with their 10,000 troops saying that they might enter the war. They're trying to push for um, uh, a structured settlement, as it would be, that will result in being able to keep the four annexed regions in the uh, south and southeast of uh, Ukraine. Right. I don't think that is the time that you uh, you surrender. That's the time that you quit. Look, I, w- uh, I would agree with you on this. At the end of the Kharkov offensive, where Russia was again pulling out their troops at the exact same time where the Ukraine got intelligence in order to basically take their region. Okay, fair enough. They should have changed for some kind of peace negotiation then. But there's no way you could tell me that with Ukraine basically printing money hand over fist in order to keep their economy going with multiple part of their energy supply. You realize that when Russia went into the country, they didn't even go after energy structure or anything like that. They were going in for this kind of soft conflict. This is not a situation where Ukraine is doing well. How many people have they been losing in these offensives that haven't necessarily been gone anywhere? I mean, I, I, look, I am unclear. Well, well, even look. So, we'll put, put this way. Remember, at the beginning of the war in February, they thought it would be a four-day war. Uh, they were going to go in. They sent uh, paratroopers into uh, into Kiev. They were going to roll through that forty-mile-long convoy of tanks, t- uh, decapitate the country, force for uh, uh, regime change, and then have a, pep- a puppet state somewhere in Belarus and Ukraine. Who said that? that? Did not work at all. Who said that? Who said that was the objective? Putin was very clear that his objective in the special military operation was to denazify the country, secure the Donbass regions. This notion of the decapitation strike, are you telling me Russia has been launching missiles for the past week and have been decimating the energy infrastructure? They didn't start off the campaign doing that. All of these things were escalatory acts as a direct result of NATO putting in more money, weapons, and troops into the conflict. This is not indicative of success from the standpoint of Ukraine. I'm not even sure how you're making this case here. Well, well, because it's very clear that if you look at the territorial gains that we've seen over the course of the last 90 days, uh, if Russia was able to mount a counteroffensive to push them out of the Herzon region, they would have done so. They have not been able to do so. Even the strikes that we're talking about on the Dnieper River Dam, uh, these are being carried out with M777 howitzers provided by the U.S. as well as HIMARS systems. These are the most accurate systems. Oh, so you do admit that Ukraine has been attacking the dam? They've been attacking the bridge that leads to the dam, not the actual dam. This is what this was the point I'm making about the M triple sevens and the high Mars, that they're able to shell with a level of accuracy. That means that they um that they can destroy the strategic aspects of supply chains and not actually take out the infrastructure as it was. If you look at what Russia is doing with the Iranian made drones that they've uh in the loitering munitions, uh, these things are hitting civilian infrastructure, um as far away as Kiev and Liev. But why? Why are they hitting civilian infrastructure? They're hitting civilian infrastructure in order to slow down the inner, meaning Ukrainian troops are being moved from point A to point B using the infrastructure itself. Russia avoided hitting those targets. What you need to explain to me is why did Russia avoid hitting those targets in the very beginning in the same way that the United States hits those targets when you're going to somewhere like Iraq? They chose not to do that. They chose to go in soft. I'm saying that that stuff is basically changing now. They had a limited force. They used an expeditionary force working with the dumbass militias and was able to take 20% of the territory. You're telling me now that Russia is somehow in a worse position now that they're bringing in 300 and 400,000 or 500,000 reserves into a situation where the Ukrainian military is basically spent and was pulling forces from other regions in order to even get in, um, keep or maintain those gains themselves. They weren't even able to get, meaning they're at a standstill at this point. This is not a stalemate. If you look at Bakhmut, for example, 
Russia is consistently making gains. The issue, more than anything else, was that Russia limited. They went into this conflict with their one hand behind their back and a velvet glove on the other. And at this point, that scenario is basically changing. Do you give me an honest assessment? You honestly believe that Ukraine is winning this thing, or at the very least, creating a stalemate scenario? I, I believe that right now, because of the fall counteroffensive, uh, that Ukraine has Russia on the back foot and going in reverse. You, in, a, in a war, in a football game, and in a fight, you never want to be going backwards for any period of time. And that's what we've seen happening with Russia. We've not seen air superiority uh, created over the region. That's why we haven't seen any strategic bomber campaigns. We've not seen— They uh, chose not to do that. That's the point that I'm making to you. That was a choice. That was a choice. I think— if you're going to choose to use these loitering munitions and these uh, uh, kind of dumb smart bombs that you get from Iran, then why not just use smart munitions? Because they don't have enough in supply. They don't have the stock for it. They don't have the microchips in order to do so. Robert. Literally one SU-57 jet fly over the, uh, Ukraine in the entire war. We've seen no T-14 uh, of the new modernized tanks being used in uh, 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 Ukraine. We haven't seen the new BMPTs, the transport systems uh, that have been created. We've seen six Terminator tanks, our uh, support vehicles used in the entire war. Russia was a paper tiger. Russia was not Robert. The point that I'm trying to make to you is they made a spe- – I think you need to go back and listen to those speeches that Putin was basically making. And he was very clear that his objective was not to decimate Ukraine. It wasn't to have these decapitation strikes. It wasn't to do any of this stuff. The Western media has been reporting this stuff as Russia couldn't do it as opposed to them deciding not to do it because that wasn't their objectives. And at this point, those objectives have apparently changed. And so in a situation where Ukraine couldn't necessarily beat an expeditionary force, now they're going to have to deal with the Russian military. I'm saying that this is not a situation of success but either Ukraine or, for that matter, the West. I'm going to, I'm going to pose a question to you. Go for it. Why did they send the paratroopers, that entire column of tanks and heavy uh, machinery, towards Kiev in February if they weren't planning on taking Kiev? Were they just there for decoration? No, they were there to take uh, to take the capital, and they weren't able to do so because of logistics. So I think that if you're looking at one, uh, the amount of foreign aid the Ukraine has received is actually more than the annual Russian military budget. Yeah, and they I, still lost 20 percent of their territory to 150 to a limited engagement at that. Look, whether you want to say that in the beginning they went in with the wrong strategy, fair enough. Mm-hmm. But there's no way you can look at the situation now with the Ukrainian government literally on its meaning the government itself is unclear how it's going to keep the lights on this idea of the offensive basically stopped installed um they've been pulling troops from all of these various regions in order to keep these offensives going and they've been losing men monstrously horribly so ukraine is not infinite amount of people and despite the fact that the military meaning all of nato has been dumping weapons and money and everything else and they still lost all of this territory and now your argument to me is basically that with the Russian military getting involved with reservists, what, 300, 500,000 coming into the country, that this exhausted Ukrainian military. I think you should read some of the publications coming out of the Washington Post and the New York Times as they describe the situation that the Ukrainian military is in. Getting decimated by artillery 10 to 1, sitting there eating a potato while they're holding a rifle. Many of these guys are being sent to the front lines immediately without the necessary training that they would need for that stuff. This is not indicative of success. 
But look, we we just saw uh, we just saw there in uh, the training facility in um, uh, in Crimea, where you have a conscripted soldier for open fire on other soldiers on the, in the Russian military. The uh, we're looking at record numbers of defections where they're interviewing these uh, Russian soldiers as they defect to the other side. Vehicles being left on the side of the road without uh, uh, without fuel and without ammunition. Do you know the biggest military supplier of heavy weapons to Ukraine has been Russia because they just left them on the side of the road during the retreats. So th- this idea that we're seeing currently in conservative media and from someone on the progressive side of the aisle saying, cut and run, quit while you're ahead, uh, I-, I don't think that uh, that's being uh, borne out. Right now we're seeing Russia on their back foot, reversing, turning tail, going the other direction. And at that same time, Kevin McCarthy and uh, uh, Jai Paul on the Democratic side are saying, well, now's the time to give up, give up and quit. This has truthfully been the greatest uh, foreign policy uh, disaster by the Biden administration that I have ever seen. Tell me, when is the last time Ukraine made gains in that country? In, in, meaning... When is the last time? Outside of the Kharkov offensive. And for that matter, Kherson. It doesn't even look like they're going to be able to take Kherson. All things being equal. The Russian military is instantiating its gains. Reserves are coming into play. They are not leaving Kherson, despite media is basically saying they're turning right. Meaning, understand that U.S. media is going to play up certain elements. Fair enough. All countries do that when they are at war. I'm making the point that lefties realize on some level that all things being equal, that we are taking a hit based on U.S. foreign policy. Europe is being deindustrialized, and they don't even know how they're going to keep the lights on this year, let alone next year. And you're acting as if this is somehow a success and that lefties were wrong for pointing out that, hey, the economy and inflation are the two biggest issues and Biden's foreign policy with the American public, by the way, agrees that he is responsible for all of this stuff. Well, they're wed to that. They realize that their populations and their constituents are taking a hit as a direct result of the policies that Biden is going with. They're not cutting and running. It's good sense for them to come out, especially if they're anti-left, anti-war, saying, hey, we need to somehow bring this conclusion or this to some level of resolution as opposed to continuing with this war that is hurting us and is hurting our allies. What what you're seeing is that uh, uh, that if you look at the Biden foreign policy compared to quote unquote the the Bush doctrine, for example. Well, let's go back to Trump. We don't even have to go to Bush doctrine. Let's say Trump. Yeah, like even the Trump doctrine, was, uh, which was you know, completely idiotic. I think we all agree with that. No, we don't. We don't agree with that. North Korea right now is firing missiles where North Korea and South Korea are exchanging where under Trump. That wasn't the case. Trump was trying to pull us out of Afghanistan. Look at what Joe Biden did. Calamity all the way through. I mean, I, I'm missing how this is even the Syria thing. When we pull, when Trump comes in office, say, okay, we're going to pull troops out of Syria. These were positive movements when, especially if you're from the standpoint of anti-war, why on earth would you want more war, especially being an anti-war guy? I am a very anti-war guy, but I'm also a military realist. Donald Trump made the Doha Agreement in 2021 to pull, uh, or in 2020, to pull all the troops out before actually having the civilian evacuation. That's what set the stage uh, for the uh, for the withdrawal that we saw. Donald. You mean in Afghanistan? Biden, Biden was in charge of that withdrawal, not Trump. Hold on. Remember that, that John McCain told us back in 2012 during the Obama administration that we could not have a date certain for withdrawal because we will see exactly what happened. The tape's there. We can go back and play it. But going back to the Are Biden— Are you really announcing John McCain, warmonger John McCain, that wanted to have more wars than the actual military wanted to have? John McCain wanted to bomb more people than the U.S. military wanted to bomb. That's the guy who you're recounting? No. 
the point the point being that the uh, that the Trump strategy, the Trump doctrine on foreign policy, seemed to be foreign policy dictated by poll numbers, foreign policy dictated not by generals on the ground, uh, but rather by politicians and people that he saw on cable news. The Biden doctrine has been a doctrine of a non-direct engagement where we fund our allies, we uh, coalesce the international community, we have a sanctioned regime, and we don't put American soldiers on the ground escalating a war. That has been significantly more effective than either the Bush doctrine uh, of direct preemptive strike or the Trump doctrine of kind of groveling before people when it's convenient for us. So Robert, <clears throat> Robert I'll, I'll jump in here. Now, to compare the Trump and Biden the doctrines or whatever it is that you want to say, let's be clear about that Afghanistan withdrawal. There was nothing that was preventing Joe Biden from changing that strategy. That's right. So, yes, let's say Trump came up with a, bad, with a bad strategy. Biden had almost 40 years of Washington experience. He touted his foreign policy experience. He was a former vice, vice president of the United States. And Joe Biden, with his capable military advisors, did not change the strategy. So that can't be blamed on Donald Trump. You can, you can say that you think it was a bad strategy, but it was a strategy that Joe Biden himself decided to use. In reference to this whole idea of Ukraine and your criticism of the progressives, now, I'm trying to understand how do you reconcile whether, fine, criticize Kevin McCarthy, um, even though I think it makes perfect sense to say that we might be scaling down some of this support for Ukraine, considering our $31 trillion debt. And we have people, you see it online, you see it on the news, you see everybody, Americans are wondering, why is it that we continue to fund, give billions to Ukraine? They're asking, even at a time, whether you're on a different side, when it comes to things like the um, student loan cancellation, we're seeing people say, well, hey, we're giving billions to Ukraine, but we can only get $10,000 student loan cancel, you know, student loan debt cancellation. This is what the American people are saying. In addition, you know, it, it, so it's not just a left or a right thing. It's not just a Kevin McCarthy or a, you know, Jaya Paul or any of them. More Americans are saying this. Poll numbers are even saying this. So how do you reconcile the, uh, the growing concern of Americans saying that we're continuing to fund Ukraine at all costs? To the disadvantage of Americans, and not just from an economic perspective, we have our military leaders at the Department of Defense, at the Pentagon, saying that we're depleting our own uh, military stockpile. We're depleting our munitions because we're supporting Ukraine. So how is it that, how do you reconcile, let's keep going with what the American people are saying, but also what our military advisors and people on both sides are saying? Like, how do you reconcile that? Well, well, very easily. One, the military assistance given to Ukraine does not drive the debt or deficit. These are loans that are actually paid back with interest. Uh, if you look at the Lend-Lease program during World War II, uh, many of the, uh, we actually made a positive economic impact of those once they were fully paid back. So the, this idea that somehow we're taking money or taking food out of the mouths of Americans to uh, give it to Ukrainians, that's antithetical to uh, the reality. No, 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 no. So it's not that we're taking money. I, I'm not making the argument that we're taking money out of people's mouth. That is available money. So we're, it, it's not being taken from one pot, given, put in another. That is available money that we're using to fund a military. And as we were talking about earlier, for a Department of Defense that has a $1 trillion um, budget, you know, they're not robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're coming up with more money to fund the operation. And the American people are saying, why do we continue to do this? We're like doing it at all costs. Like, 
I'm just, how are you reconciling these two things? Because you seem to be on the maybe the more Lindsey Graham side and Marco Rubio side of things. And John McCain side. And the neocons (laughs) side of things than where many other Americans are. And I would probably say most. Uh, oh, oh, no, I, I think most Americans still stand on the side of the Ukrainian people because uh, what we have to realize is if we start allowing wars of aggression to succeed, uh, we start allowing countries to say, well, my neighbor is weak and they have some, uh, some oil that I would like to have, just as America did uh, in the Iraq war, well, then we're going to see the chain reaction. Frankly, Putin cited America's war in Iraq when it came to the invasion of Ukraine as a war of aggression. So America has to push back against these because if you do not stop this here, then we're going to see the Armenian-Azerbaijani war uh, go back hot again over the same issues. You're going to see the Chinese invasion of Taiwan if they believe that the promises of the United States to support its allies. So you're back to the domino theory. So you're back to the domino theory. This was the theory during the Cold War. Well, if you allow this, then all of this other stuff goes on. Let me ask you the Cuban Missile Crisis. Give me your example of that. So the United States is willing to end the world because they didn't necessarily want missiles in Cuba. Was that correct or was that incorrect? Oh, that was incorrect. The Russians had every reason to put missiles in Cuba because the U.S. had missiles in Turkey. Uh, it, it was very much the mad theory. And frankly, when you have somebody like uh, Kennedy in office who had very little foreign policy experience, who again was uh, governing based off of public opinion polls and what people were seeing on television at night, that's how you end up with bad foreign policy as opposed to uh, following what the military advisors are telling you to do. We saw this also during Vietnam when McNamara and LBJ were calling in missile strikes or bombing runs from the White House. Uh, as opposed to listening to what the uh, cogent military advice was, what we're seeing right now in Ukraine is uh, a new paradigm, a change in the way that war is going to be fought going forward, um, where asymmetric warfare in, a, in conjunction with modern technology can bring to halt an entire uh, the world's second largest military when it comes to objectives. We saw uh, something similar to this in Afghanistan, where the United States was there for 20 years with every advanced weaponry in the world and could not stop uh, an insurgent force that had home field advantage. Hey, Robert, I, you happen to be one of the very few people I've seen compliment Jordan, Joe Biden's foreign policy. Same I've here. seen people on both sides of the political aisle not praise or think we're entering into a new era of U.S. foreign policy under Joe Biden. I mean, this is the same guy who went to Saudi Arabia and instead of meeting with the head there, met with his daddy and then to try to, um, as we were, uh, what was that? The, the oil, OPEC. Yeah, OPEC, OPEC plus. plus. Right. Like, they ignored him. Yeah. And they're doing that in many other places. I, I Turkey, The notion that Saudi somehow Arabia. we're now yeah. the city, the, the, the country on a hill because, and everybody looks up as, looked up to us as a beacon of light now that Joe Biden is president. I haven't seen really anybody make that argument that Joe Biden, Nobody. somehow his foreign policy is taking us in a new direction. I honestly have not seen that. Well, oh, well look, I'll give a perfect example of the new direction of American foreign policy is going to broaden the Saudi um, uh, question with regard to OPEC+. Plus. Remember, Russia is a member of OPEC+. Plus. Uh, that's why the Saudis uh, sided with uh, Russia. That's not why they did it. Plus agreement. That's not why they did it. At the- 
But, but hold, hold on. At the same time, uh, we saw that in 2019, President Trump tried to sponsor a coup in Venezuela, uh, putting in Juan Guaido over Nicolas Maduro. Well, the Biden regime came in, reestablished the legitimacy of the Maduro regime, and struck a new oil deal with them in order to make up some of the uh, lost production that's coming out of OPEC. So this is what I mean by President Biden attacking foreign policy asymmetrically and in a way that's not based on what looks good on cable news that night, but rather what makes the best for the United States of America. There's no picture of Joe Biden holding a golden or a shining globe with the Saudis while uh, shaking a saber and doing dances with them as we saw during the Trump regime. He's taking a far more hardline approach with them when it comes to addressing the issues of uh, human rights. And a dip- That's why he went over there begging for oil. Please, sir, can I get some oil? And they basically told him, no, kick rocks and go back home. This is not indicative of power. This is indicative of embarrassment. I mean, look, you can dislike Trump. But all things been equal, Donald Trump kept us out of those wars that Joe Biden seems to be perfectly, you know, enamored to get us into. But Robert appreciated this conversation. We're, we're coming to the end of the show. Attorney Robert Hillard Patillo, the second executive director of Rainbow Push Coalition's Peachtree Street Project headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Malik, Jamal, back in the morning. Have a good one, guys. Fault Lines.